YouTube you want. Hey guys, just a brief delay. We'll be playing videos for a minute and then I'll be joining with George live. Hopefully, please bear with us on our first live stream uh, with a guest. So I'm going to play you a couple of videos. Uh, okay, guys, it looks like I got George. I'm going to play a couple of videos of me and George anyway. because the videos are on. Hey guys, Dan the Wolfman here. Thank you for checking out my videos. Go to thecombatsystem.com for all your mixed martial arts needs. And please subscribe to my YouTube page. Make sure to go to thecombatsystem.com and subscribe to my YouTube page.
for counting me, and it was a good time. Thank you very much. Thank you for you. Thank um, for helping me. Uh, make sure to subscribe to this guy's uh, channel, Dan the Wolfman. You respect the game, and you know the game. You know what you're talking about, and uh, yeah, you're pretty credible. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, in high school, if I told the popular beautiful dog. You guys, looks like we're. I have to kill somebody. Hey, 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 hey. Longevity, not a word synonymous with the cocaine trade. So let me get this. Can you get my money? It's, it's not. Please, can't go out like that. Just can't do it. <laughs> Yeah, I try to lock you from there. Yeah. Punch? No, thank you. That hit, it's got audio too, yeah? That hit was at least as hard and deeper than any power low cross any boxer MMA fighter would give, and it actually went deeper because he punches deeper. So it's still here. It's nasty. <laughs> See, that's, 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 yeah. Okay, guys, we're going to go live in about two more minutes. Just showing some clips of Vladimir Vasiliev and George so you get a little taste of Sistema before we talk to George. Different, you know, boom, boom, boom. Oh. 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 A little bit of technical difficulties with some of the video. Alright guys, one more video, George, and then we'll go live. Now that was here. And you're talking. He's gonna punch. Oh, my wrist hurts. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't fucking hurt. How about here? Does it hurt when I punch here no. in the middle? 
How? You're a fucking beast. <laughs> from coming from a doctor's brain. Okay, listen. If somebody hits you hard enough, they can break through. They can break your sternum. Like they can break this. They can well, break this or hard, that. What's hard enough? I mean, and, and we're not all created equal. That's true. What if you're hitting so like, like that? Fuck out. <laughs> he didn't rip my chest, but he ripped my shirt. All right, guys, here we go. Let's see. Welcome, George S. Pogosich. Guys, thank you for joining us, our uh, first live stream with a guest. Welcome, George. How you doing, sir? Pretty good. Does that look good with the punching bag behind me? That looks pretty good with the punching bag behind you. And uh, we just saw the clip of Peter Maloda, uh, Van Dam's Viking Samurai, Van Dam's long time uh fight choreographer worked in about 50 van damme movies even one released in 2019 pretty recently so uh pretty pretty cool stuff so i'll introduce you a bit fill in the blanks if you want guys george is an actor uh he started as a nasty villain in a movie we'll talk about he's a, a cameraman bit of a cinematographer editor for movies, commercials, and uh, rock stars, rock videos, takes a lot of videos. And uh, he's also a longtime martial artist, I think, uh, what, some like 45 years, something like that, uh, Sistema Wizard. And uh, guys, we're also going to talk some UFOs and what's going on in this crazy world uh, we live in. So... George, if you would, just uh, fill in the blanks, tell people about yourself, some of your interests, some of the stuff that uh, you're into, what you do for work, and the uh, uh, kind of cameraman uh, type stuff, if you would. Yeah, there's so much for it. Really, I do, you know? uh, I started, when I was 10 years old, I started learning martial arts, and it was judo and uh, tang sudo. And then I moved on to... Uh, Let's see, from that point, uh, I moved on to, uh, well, I got really involved with, you know, once I seen uh, the series Kung Fu and Bruce Lee movies and all that stuff and Chuck Norris, I started getting into Kung Fu and everything else through the movies. So I started studying Wing Chun Kung Fu. And then uh, I went on from that to boxing. So it was like Wing Chun, because my father used to always tell me I really should get into boxing because it was more practical than anything else. And he was trying to, he didn't want to say it, but he said, you know, movies are movies, they're fake. He didn't want to say that. He wanted me to enjoy myself watching those movies, but at the same time, he was kind of nudging me over to boxing. So once I got, you know, I got really involved in boxing when I saw Mike Tyson. So I got really involved with that. And at the same time, Above the Law came out. So I was uh, involved with uh, looking into keto and stuff like that. So I studied well, about, that. About how, old, about how old were you at that time when you were looking at a boxing and Steven Seagal and stuff? 
Well, I started, I was interested in boxing. I started boxing at 16, but I didn't really get into it until Mike Tyson uh, came around. So I think I was around uh, 19, 18, 19. Okay. And uh, that, that I, I was always into boxing somewhat here and there and all that, but never really got into it until he came around. And then, um, so then let's see, after that, uh, in the 90s, of course, I got involved with jujitsu. I think that's when I met you. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, if you want to talk martial arts first, we could. Or if you want to talk movie stuff, uh, we can. I want people to know, you know, how they could hire you for work and, and camera operator and editing and FX and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll talk about all the movies and little incidences you've had with, with various actors and stuff like that. If you want to okay, discuss that first. Where'd you like to start? Let's start with you with some of the movie background. Um, okay. and, and, and that you, 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 you can get hired to do camera work, uh, for commercials. And I think you're getting into FX stuff. Um, and let's talk about the movies. Um, some of the stuff, that that you've done, if you can remember, probably when I'm guessing when Michigan first did some tax incentive, is that kind of when you really uh, got on sets for the first time, or, or take us well, to no, that? That's kind of when it exploded and became, you know, real interesting here in Michigan. Everybody started everybody started writing screenplays. You know, before then, nobody even knew what a screenplay was. You know, uh, but nobody even seen a screenplay before. But I was involved in uh, making independent films way before then. So that was like around 2000, you know, 1999 around here. And uh, and then it wasn't until I think uh, Michael Bay made uh, The Island over here that it really exploded and the, and, uh, every, the tax incentive was uh, created for us because everybody was going, everybody was making movies about Detroit, but they weren't making them in Detroit. So that, so they figured, well, if there's that much of an interest to emulate Detroit or, or make something look like Detroit, let's get the movie industry in here. So that was fun for us all. So then that started in 2009. And uh, so I got in a lot of bit parts, you know, uh, when that was going on, but uh, still maintained a lot of the local independent stuff. We did, I did a film uh, back in 2005, uh, there's a Dan Casey film, and that was Death of Michael Smith. I did that film where I played uh, a pivotal role where I was an assassin. I like playing assassin roles. So I was an actor there, but I was also a cameraman. Usually, like, when you're making independent films, you wear more than one hat. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, so I was a cameraman when I wasn't actually the talent. When I wasn't the talent, I was the cameraman. Was that the cool footage with the picture you got? And I think you got like an M16 or something. And at the end of it, you, you two guys with knives. Yeah. Like, that's right. really got, cool. That's really cool footage. <laughs> interesting. That was a Dan Casey film. And Dan Casey, I believe, uh, I know he got a, I know he went on to do, uh, he's in California now. And he, I think he directed uh, Fast and Furious 4. Really? Yeah. So wow. uh, that was one of his first films. And I helped him shoot, and then he, uh, you know, edited and wrote it and everything else. And he was the driving force here in creating all the interest. Dan Casey was. He was actually my mentor. He oh, helped really? me. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he was, he was uh, really uh, ahead of his time over here and created did, lots of energy and interest. Do you know if people can find that movie to watch the whole thing? I mean, I've yeah. seen the, like, end fight scene of yours, but can people find it online somewhere or something like that? Do you know? 
Yeah, I think you can. I think if you look it up, and um, I think you can. Uh, I think you can look up uh, Death of Michael Smith either on YouTube or I think. It's, I don't know if it's sold on Amazon, but I know I can. I find parts of it. You know, you can look up like certain scenes and stuff like that up on, on YouTube. And then I was okay. in. Um, I was in a movie with Lance Hendrickson in 2014, and Lennox, or I think John Lennox or something from uh, from Matrix. And uh, yeah, I, I worked say, with him. I worked uh, with him on. Um, oh, uh, oh, it's a big show. I'll think of it in a minute. A very nice guy. Go yeah, ahead. Sorry. Yeah, he he was uh, he was uh, he, you, you start talking to me. You. He he start like saying his lines and you didn't even know he was saying his lines from the movie. So, because <laughs> he just look at everybody and just start saying his lines every time he walked around. He saw somebody, he'd start striking up a conversation. You thought that was a conversation, but really he was saying his lines. You know, but 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 it was kind of like a shame on you for not recognizing those lines. You should know that script, that script uh, inside and out because you're on it. You know. Well, yeah, that's that's a that's a professional. I worked with it's a guy the the the, the taller uh, black gentleman, correct? That's uh, John Lennox from Matrix. Yeah, and then and then, uh, but but I'm talking about Lance Hendrickson. Oh, Lance about Lance Hendrickson. Okay. Yeah, Lance Hendrickson starred. He played the evil scientist, and I played his his son. And, I, uh, I love Lance Hendrickson. I mean, Aliens, man. I mean, that's oh yeah. That's, that's, and Near Dark was one of my favorite movies. No one's ever watched Vampire. Um, that, that was I mean, good. Did you know they were going to cast him as uh, Terminator instead of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? That's uh, that's that's crazy. Also, Lance Henderson stole the show in uh, Van Damme and John Woo's movie Viking Samurai. You got to hop in there. He goes over that uh, hard target uh, quite quite a bit. Um, so he's a, a phenomenal actor and, and to work with someone from, from freaking aliens, man, that has to be just so amazing. It's such an iconic film. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. He was amazing. Um, he's an amazing actor and you know, just how he, he's got that great voice, you know? And, uh, I remember, um, on the, on the side of the film, you know, he Needle was, stick. Uh, Needle stick, correct? Yeah, he did his own fight scenes too. You know, he was seventy years old, seventy-two, and uh, you know, we were on. I was also a, a stunt uh, for the fights. I was a stunt coordinator, not stunt coordinator, uh, cor uh, fight choreographer. And uh, I was. Uh, we were talking about you know, how we were going to choreograph his fight scenes, but he wanted to do his own uh, his own thing, his own punches and everything else, and he could do it. It's uh, he knew, he knew how to. He knew how to uh, do it actually better than we did, you know. He gave us some tips on how to sell a punch. Really? <laughs> he actually That's did. Cool. Yeah. Seems, seems, seems like a very uh, kind of interesting out there guy, but. Yeah, he was, right? uh, He's a, yeah, he used to be a Kempo uh, student. Oh, okay. So uh, that was that was the movie Needle Stick. You guys want to, you want to tell people about the movie and the, the awesome role that you played because really guys for a kind of lower end budget I, I guess would it be described as a horror film i don't know i watched the entire thing it was a very cool movie and george is <laughs> really phenomenal in it yeah i was i didn't have any lines though in that movie but well, uh, at the very end at the very end you said something didn't you yeah at the I, very very end i think i did anyway even though i wasn't supposed to you know oh there you I go <laughs> 
I don't think it was like written in there, but I thought oh, I'll say it anyway. But uh, yeah, uh, that I, I played the, I played, uh, well, not, I don't know if I, you could say I was a killer surgeon or something or anything like that, but I was, uh, I was, de I was definitely the killer in there. And um, I was killing everybody in that hospital. And I remember seeing the uh, people that were going to play nurses and things like that. I said, I'll probably kill you too. Every time I met them, <laughs> are you in this movie? I'll probably kill you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. And uh, so guys, George is walking around scary as hell. Like I guess Jason Voorhees or something like, uh, like, like from one of those Jason movies, like he's stalking people and even without speaking until the very end, which is cool. You can throw a line out at the very end. That's all right. But it was actually a big payoff. So I'm surprised that wasn't scripted. If I'm remembering it correctly, it was a few years ago, but uh, George is just, because he's a physical master that it portrayed itself on film in a, in a very good way. And I think you should be proud of that. So uh, guys, uh, there's a couple clips on YouTube, three clips on YouTube that I found. If you can find needle stick to watch it, uh, you need to check it out. Viking Samurai, you need to go check that one out. So um, yeah. And I mean, it was very, very cool. Um, anything else you want to say about that? And then like to hear about some of your other movie stories. I remember there was one scene in there in a room where a guy was, Hank was trying to get away and he, uh, the camera was filming the hallway when he left the room and I was coming after, I was inside the room and I pull him back into the room really fast. And I remember my goal was to accelerate him as fast as I could. And this guy was about 250 pounds here. But I grabbed by his ankle about 10 times as fast as I could. I would yank him back in the room, you know. And uh, I wanted to make it look like, you know, like an effect, you know, like ropes. Like, a, like yeah, no, no oil worker pull system or harness needed if you got George on set. He can grab right. a camera, he can act, he can choreograph the fights. Like, I mean, really, I hope some people will see this interview and, and maybe it will help you get some of uh, the notice recognition for your wide variety of skills that uh, that you have. Um, so needle stick was very cool. Um, you give, tell guys about uh, being on with Wesley Snipes a little oh, bit. That was, that was interesting. I actually got called. Somebody, I didn't even know it was happening until I got a phone call that they were having the auditions at the Royal Music Theater. And it was all the martial artists showed up. So it was like 200 martial artists that showed up from all over the place. And so when I got in there, I saw, oh, man, this is just a, you know, I thought I thought it was more of an exclusive thing. So then, um, and you just walk in there and you sell a punch. You know, say your name and sell a punch, and they're going to pick you know anybody who can sell a punch good. You know, that's what they're looking for. But uh, then they kind of changed the rules after, and they said anybody had skills, special skills. So I had knives and things like that that I brought. And uh, so we we went in there, and uh, there was uh, Wesley Snipes. Snipes guys and bodyguards and stunt guys and all that. And uh, so uh, I, they said, you got anything prepared? I said, no, I don't have anything prepared. Just attack me. Because uh, what I do spontaneous is going to be better than anything uh, that I do if I'm trying to choreograph it. So I just said, I'll just fight. Let's just fight here. You know? <laughs> so uh, Wesley Snipes guys would throw a punch or do whatever, and then I just – you know, improvise what I was doing, what I was going to do. And he was just saying that, you know, stunt guys have contact, right? We believe in contact because somebody was saying, play things safe, you know, gauge yourself and all that. They were coaching the actors. And he was kind of 
laughing about that. He says, us stunt guys, you know, we're rougher than that. You know, we, uh, we take, we take the punches. Well, guess what? That's what happened because that's what I did to, to his stunt guys. Yeah. I, I hit him, you know, not, not in the face, but the body, you know, nice, nice, some nice good thumps. And then, yeah. um, and then I left and he says, Oh, that boy just came in just to kick ass and leave. He doesn't want to be in a movie. He says, get it back. <laughs> and he says, get a script in his hand. So that was the most challenging part right there. Cause uh, now you have to, now you have to rehearse this script uh, and you have to come back an hour and you're going to have to say it with somebody. So that was the most difficult thing. Yeah. And, it's not easy. People don't well, realize how difficult it is. They had me juggling balls and, and saying the lines. They said, if you could juggle these balls at the same time and you, and say your lines, you know, your lines. So that, that's what one, you know, people are coming around. I didn't know who they were trying to help me out with that, you know, cause I was the only yeah. one that I was the only one out of all 200 martial artists that left with a screenplay in his hand, you know, they were watching people. Yeah. So I was the one that came out with the screenplay. So, um, unfortunately they, there was a bit of pushback and he didn't really end up getting much of a scene. The reason or, is, or anything, right? well, the reason is because they fired the director. Uh, okay. so, they, so they started, they hired some Italian director from uh, Italy, brought him in. There's a lot of fights and fighting and problems going on in that movie. It's amazing that movie ever got produced at all, you know, because yeah. they, they over budgeted and spent so much money on it. You know, several million dollars in this movie is supposed to be a low budget, but I mean, still low budget. But I mean, it, it was supposed to be seven million. I don't know. I think it went, they went, it went by the time they were done, it was like 14 million or something, you know, with yeah, all the these. Yeah, these things happen, and it's it, it's depressing sometimes. You think you got something big, and it falls apart, and people right. don't understand the trials and tribulations, and even trying to be in the movie business at all. Did you do? Did you guys end up rehearsing a bit of fight scenes and stuff before it all kind of? Yeah, we were doing all kinds of stuff. Before Wesley Snipes even came in, we were uh, practicing our boxing moves. You know, there was a guy that was uh, giving us stuff to do. You know, keep us training. So we were boxing and slipping, and we had focus mitts and everything. All of us were doing that. And um, okay. and then when they came in at the end, they said, hey, whatever you do, don't listen to the director. Well, what? <laughs> we thought, what? Don't listen? That's not something you expect. You think, okay, you guys, make sure you listen to the director, you know? And so yeah. they said, no, because they were, the director was on his way out. And they had some trouble there with, with them and stuff, and so... Wesley Snipes came in later on. So we were there from eight in the morning to four by the time we started uh, rehearsing anything. And we had, and then Simon Ree showed up. Simon Ree mm -hmm. uh, from Best of the Best. He was in that. Best of the Best, him and his brother for sure. Yeah, well, he came. Johnny. He was choreographing the fight with me and Wesley Snipes. And, and if you let him go at it, he's really going to do something cool. So he gave me an involved fight scene. But then when that new director came in, he said, well, it doesn't fit the story because if you're a mental patient, the good guy, Wesley Sipes, shouldn't beat up the mental patient. So uh, by just by that, they cut the fight scene because they didn't want him to be brutal on a mental patient. That, you know? that sucks, man. I'm, I'm sorry. That would have been awesome. Did you get to interact with, with Wesley at all? Or do you got any opinions on how he was when he walked in? Yeah, we, well, we talked quite a bit, you know, and then um, – then the fight scenes we were rehearsing, he was throwing me into stuff, picking me up and flipping me into stuff. And I'll tell you something, you know, when you're when you're doing fight scenes at that level, it feels real because it is real. <laughs> I mean, to a degree, yeah. 
he so it's not too hard to to act because you can just add a little to it and, and you got it because pretty much he's slamming the end of stuff and it's up to you to take care of yourself if you're a stunt guy you should take care of yourself so he's not the he's not the biggest guy he's probably i don't know uh five eight five nine five eight but maybe he, you felt like he had some power and could tell he was a trained martial artist he's on i think 175 pounds and 510 yeah you know and uh yeah he's strong he was strong to, to throw me around like he was doing. Just uh, if you just hand hand your weight to him and he can handle your weight and spin you all over, that's pretty strong. Well, that's, slam you. That's cool. I yeah, mean, I mean, that's, being able to interact with Wesley Snipes and Lance Henderson and stuff, especially not being in LA, being a guy in Michigan, right. you've had you've had some cool experiences. So in general, he seemed like a pretty cool guy to talk martial arts with and that kind of stuff. He was so cool. He was very soft spoken too. You know, he's not loud at all. Like, you know, like in his films and stuff, he really projects. He's kind of quiet and you got to go, huh? You know, you got to like, you got to listen to what he, you gotta, he's not, he's not really loud. He was very interested in, in what I was doing. You know, Sistema, he was interested in that and he wanted to, me to send him stuff. You know, so that he could create a library of moves. So he asked that he asked uh, for me to send them different things. He thought uh, that that could be useful for his future stuff. Cool. So he, yeah. he, he began, and after that, he started training in system with Martin Wheeler. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. I saw him. I saw him later. Realized guys like him and uh, Guru Dan and Asano also training in Sistema and uh, Mark Denny, Crafty Dog. You know, so. Um, people that bad-mouthing system, which we'll get to in a little bit, you know, that's something they might want to kind of keep in keep in mind if there's people like me and you and Dennis Asano and Crafty Dog and, you know, Wesley Snipes, you know, you might want to go, oh, hey, maybe there's uh, something to it, you know. Well, a little thing, bit of the one thing is that it teaches you how to survive, and when it does that, it teaches you to survive as a stuntman, too. Yeah. I mean, you took the kick from Peter Melota, a flying drop kick, you know, Brandon Lee, uh, laser mission style, fly, yeah. <laughs> flying drop kick from, from Peter Melota with cowboy boots on, right? The cowboy yep. boots, he had the spurs and, and the quest. Uh, yeah. And guys, he's still choreographing all the stuff. And I've met Peter Melota once. Was actually, I, I went and talked to him at his uh, dojo there in Birmingham, Michigan, his dojo, his Taekwondo school. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was saying, oh, yeah, looks like we're going to finally get it going. This is years ago. I don't know how long ago, but Kumite, uh, Bloodsport 2, Kumite, Kumite. Right. He's going to film in Vancouver, and uh, he liked me, and he said he could probably get me in and all that, and I haven't talked to the guy since then, but I looked on IMDb recently. He's still been working with Jean-Claude Van Vuenberg. So, Jean-Claude, you know, I'm reaching out to your wife, man. Me and, me and George can come uh, take some kicks from you in a movie. Uh, yeah. I think we we'd both be very happy to get kicked by John Claude. Um, so I messaged his wife the other day. She's responded nicely a couple times. It's 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 great. Um, you know, maybe you had the Wesley Snipes thing. I think you and me both would love to uh, get beat up by Van Damme in a movie while he's still even able to at his. You know, he's getting up there in age and and. Uh, <laughs> That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, I'm sure if he under if he knows that you that you like to get kicked, then he'll kick you because because he, he, he I don't think he has a problem with that. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't I don't think he has a problem with that either. So, um, Jean Claude, 
I watched JCVD and Inhol the other day. Inhol is highly underrated. Um, you know, guys, on the 27th when Viking Samurai comes on, I'm sure me and him will get into his boy crush, Jean-Claude Van Vettenberg. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you were taking the kicks from Meloda with cowboy boots on. I don't think many people could, could do that take after take. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you about that. Uh, you can see the wave ripple through me, right? Right. You can see you can see the force go right through my back in that clip. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't fake physics. It's a man flying through the air. Right. And then when he hits, you can see you can see it ripple through my back like water. Uh, yeah. I got kicked like that over and over. You know, like six or seven times. And uh, we did multiple takes like that. And I wasn't wearing any pads or anything, just that shirt. So I just stand there getting kicked by this guy. You know. And uh, watching them come at me, right? And not flinching and not doing nothing. Just watch. I just, to me, it was like watching TV. I was watching this guy on TV, you know, like he was kicking at the camera, you know, coming right at the camera. So, but then I felt it. That's the difference, right? But that's the difference. You felt it. Right. But, but part I, of that is that psychologically, you can almost remove yourself to third person. We'll get into once we start talking about your martial art background. But uh, Viking Sam Racing and the Spurs were in double impact. All right. Well, yeah, I can, the, the, the black, like the scene in the darkness and he's in and out of the, the light and the shadows and you hear him and the spinning hook kicks and stuff. I remember Viking. I see you. So you'll get your turn to talk in a, in a couple weeks uh, on the 27th. Um, so, yeah, man, you've had some good experiences. And uh, before we move on to martial arts and STEMA, is, is your um, – you got your various YouTube channels, George S. Pogosic, Pogosic, Pogosic. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I do color correcting, visual effects, directing, writing, uh, sound mixing. You know, how can people get a hold of you if they want to hire can you get, for jobs? George S. Pogosic, right? My Facebook page, George Go S. Ahead, yeah, say that one more time. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. George S. Pogosic. On Facebook? Yeah, on Facebook. Okay. Awesome. Um, so uh, unless I'm missing any of this, the, the real good – oh, yeah, we missed um, – that's the best. We talked about Simon Rio already. We got to talk about Eric Roberts before we move on. Oh, yeah. Eric Roberts, that's right. So that was uh, – a buddy of mine, Johnny Anton, was filming a movie, Guns, Drugs, Dirty Money, and uh, he needed uh, my camera. So he had me come down there. And uh, so I was cameraman. Uh, I, where I went was uh, John's house. That's where Eric Roberts was. So, so John, yeah. Eric Roberts stayed at John's house, which is amazing in itself. And he he was there uh, because it was right the day before Christmas too. It was just I think it was like it was either it was Christmas Eve or something. Yeah, I think it was Christmas Eve. I think he was there on Christmas Eve. It's kind of bizarre. But Eric Roberts, <laughs> Eric Roberts is out there. So. Uh, and I found that out when I got there, you know, and I remember one time I remember cause I was, so I was the DP there. I was shooting Eric Roberts scenes and I remember, um, somehow somebody was talking about martial arts, you know, and I said, uh, you know, everybody was talking about what I was doing. And he says to me, he just says, what is this guy supposed to be some ultimate badass or something or what? You know, he says, that. And then he goes, hey, hey, what, what style do you study? What style? He goes, I do. I'm a black belt. He said, He's a black belt or something. He goes, what style is that that you study? I said, Sistema. And he goes, Sistema? He says, how come I never heard of it? 
<laughs> like he should have heard everything, right? Like Eric Roberts should know, being in Hollywood, if there's anything going around, he should know what it is if it's any good, right? Well, he was in Best of the Best, man. Come on. <laughs> so, so John told me, okay, because I was going to get into it with him, you know, and, you know, just to show here. And um, he just said, John goes, hey, don't, uh, don't, I don't want you to get no martial arts, nothing. Just stick to what you're doing and that's it, you know, because he's uh, afraid that, uh, you know, something could happen here. And Don't break the star, George. The star. Don't you dare hit the star and make him go crying. <laughs> right, like something might screw up. And he doesn't want anything to screw up because he's lucky as hell to have, you know, Eric Roberts there. Well, Eric Roberts. I just recently rewatched Best of the Best after watching uh, Viking Samurai's uh, videos about the top five stars, not one of the main action stars of the 80s and 90s. Of course, number one was Brandon Lee, my favorite. Uh, we'll talk to him uh, about rapid fire and stuff, I'm sure. But um, got me thinking about Best of the Best, and I rewatched it. Eric Roberts, in a kung fu flick, if you will, a Taekwondo movie. He, best of the best. Eric Roberts almost or started to bring me to tears with his performance. I didn't realize how great it was when I watched it as a teenager because I cared about the kicking. Right. But now re-watching it as a grown-ass man, Eric Roberts performed like an Oscar in, in a karate flick. Yeah. About his son getting hit by a car and the emotion. Oh my God, this guy's a freaking amazing actor. If you can do that in a in a in a martial arts flick, um, it really, it blew my mind. I'm like, have wow. You seen, have you ever seen Have you ever seen uh, Pope of Greenwich Village with him and Eric, uh, him and um, Mickey Rourke? I don't think I've ever seen it, but I know he won an award for it. Yeah. And it's it's and uh, Burt Young plays uh, the Godfather. Burt Young, Paulie from Rocky. Remember Paulie also in Laser Rocky? Mission. I think Burt Young. Am I right on that? Or was it the guy from Airwolf? I might be wrong. No, you remember? Uh, well, Easy. No, what was what, 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 uh, Rodney Dangerfield? Back to School. He was the heavy in Back to School. He's a little Italian guy, and he played uh, in Rocky. He played Paulie. Uh, oh yeah, of course. His brother, right? Just a great actor. And he does such a good job too in this. He's a godfather in it, and uh, the the ending is the best ever. It's just, you know, when you see the characters change, they go through change. You know, they they transform into something, yeah, uh, just amazing. You know, from how they were, and uh, that's 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 what makes a great movie when you when you see change, when you see characters go through a change. You know, they have a conflict, and you see that established in the first twenty minutes. And then as it goes on towards the end, they go through this change. And, and, and you're, you, feel, you feel like you're living vicariously through them. That's when it's great. And you don't want the movie to end. Do you think Eric Roberts can do that because he's a little bit out there? And actors are known for being a little bit out there? I think you have to. Uh, I think you have to be a little out there to do that that well, you know? To make that I, yeah. change. Yeah, it's not like you really changed over a 10 years or five years in a movie time. You're changing from one scene to the next. Well, I'll tell you something funny about him. When I was uh, when we were getting ready and I we had some downtime and I was talking to him, I complimented him. I said, you know, I, I loved your performance in Pope of Greenwich Village. And he lightened up and he starts talking to me about every detail, about something. He's telling me a certain thing when he was working on that movie with uh, Mickey Rourke. 
and I was listening yeah. for about five minutes, five, ten minutes. Do you know I happened to uh, click on um, Jay Leno or something, and he recited that same thing he told me verbatim? I thought I, I thought he was being genuine. I thought I, I didn't know he was reciting something he memorized. Was there a memorized anecdotal uh, story? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was so bizarre because exactly what he told me, word for word, when we were having the conversation, is exactly what he what he was saying on Jay Leno. Like, you know, I felt I didn't know how to feel about that, you know? Well, I think presidents and politicians do the same thing to light up the room. They tell a funny story or anecdote. <laughs> I, I, right. think I, I think people you know, maybe famous people have to do that, you know, like it's easier than bumbling your way through it, I guess, over and over again, getting asked the same questions over and over again for the same subject or the same movie that you won an award for. Um, almost dissociative personality, but maybe to be great, to be great scientist, to be a, a forward thinking guy, great martial artist, a great actor, you have to be a little bit out there. So I think that's a good way to segue into your martial arts background. And perhaps that even gives insight to why you have amazing abilities and everyone's not the same and we're not all built the same The world would be pretty boring if uh, we were. So uh, let's, let's go back into your, your martial arts background, which you were getting into from early age. How old were you when it started? You said judo and judo or something. Yeah, it was judo and Tokyo. It was judo at the YMCA for a day or two, you know. And okay. uh, because this kid that I knew, that's what he was doing, uh, learning judo. So I went with him and his mom. And uh, that same guy, that same guy, he's still around teaching at uh, the same YMCA. And he's now a Facebook friend of mine. And I can't believe that he's, <laughs> yeah, he's a buff and muscular and everything. I thought, you know, I didn't even know if the guy was alive. After all those years, it's hard to believe. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> cool. Yeah. And uh, Paul Robichuk is his name. And he's always uh, he's always saying stuff uh, or he's always you know shouting out or commenting or liking my videos or something, you know. So it's it's cool. So, it's, so you dabbled. When, when were you first really interested in martial arts? It was like 13? How old were you? No, I, when I started to do I, – I was interested like ever since, you know, even in that judo class, but I couldn't figure out how to make what it was. You know, I mean, I, I, I wanted to learn how to fight because I was getting picked on all the time. And when I, when I learned judo and karate, that sounds like the ultimate way to defend yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's like the ultimate right there. You can't think of anything above martial arts or, you know, judo and karate, man, if you knew, if a kid knew that, that's all he would need. He'd really easily destroy any enemy. Right. So, well, you you were, you were also influenced by like Enter the Dragon and Kung Fu and stuff like that, right? I, like, well, that's in, I started that when I was twelve. I, I I was trying to learn these martial arts from books and things, you know, and uh, and, and until I, you know, everybody wore geese, you know, like I had this Bruce Tegner book, you know, and they looked like you know friends of my dad's or something. Arrow Flynn haircuts, you know, <laughs> greased haircuts. You know, I mean, it was just. It was all black and white pictures and stuff. So I couldn't relate to that as a kid. But when I saw Chuck Norris jump through a car window, I could relate. You know, that was great. That was great stuff. You know, oh, you can wear blue jeans and you can wear a leather jacket and you look, you can look cool like that. Oh, yeah, you can punch fast. I didn't know about that. 
You can uh, do comedy, all this stuff, right, that they're doing, weapons and everything. So I was seeing it for the first time and getting the better picture of the whole thing through movies, through, you know, Chuck Norris movies. And then, uh, you know, of course, the David Carey. Then Bruce Lee then made me forget about Chuck Norris. Once I, once I found out about Bruce Lee, it was all Bruce Lee. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I started to get those books and trying to understand that. And I learned about Wing Chun after that. And throughout the years, you know, finding classes and stuff like that or just whatever I could get my hands on, you know, and then traveling all over the place to see who's who. Every time I heard a claim about something in one art or another, I try to go see who it was and what they could really do. You know, you hear ninjutsu, ninjutsu, what's that, you know? So, so And that sounds similar to myself. It's like inquisitive, having an inquisitive mind or there's yeah. a new guy in town, I'm going to go check his school out. And I've said that on my channel, like, why can I do some of the standing walks and stuff? Well, because I know about different martial arts. I've trained in all these different styles. But, I, you know, like there's that guy, you know, had a Salat school. I went in the back with him one day, and I never even, like, I've only dabbled in Salat. I've never really done it other than a few classes at JKD seminars and at JKD schools. But I would still, right. like, go check someone out by being inquisitive. And that's something... I think people that are like, oh, well, why can you do this? And they can't do that. It's like, that's part of it is that inquisitive mind that me and you both shared, I think, to like, oh, let's go look at this. Let's go dabble in that Wing Chun. Let's go over to that Sila guy over there. There's a new JKD school. Um, let's kind of go do that. Is, is that kind of right? Well, yeah. And then, yeah. and then I always understood that you had to spar a long time ago. I, I realized right away that none, nothing works unless you spar with it. Yeah, you got so when did you first really spar? Is that when you got in a hard hardcore in a boxing Mike Tyson, and it, did that lead you to go to the Crunk Gym? Well, I was getting a, I was getting in a lot of fights as a kid. That was my sparring for anything that I thought I knew or learned, and whatever the outcome of that was was the test for if I was doing something right or not. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying even in high school you were having like street street scraps. Well, we had people, you know, in high school that were boxers and things like that. I, I only weighed 150 pounds, but these guys could bench, you know, 350 pounds, and they boxed and everything. And uh, and I was uh, just skinny like a rail. And uh, they were better athletes. I could never do the things they did, you know, basketball. I could never do any of that. But when they came over to uh, box, I could knock their head off, even at 150 pounds. Yeah, I could always – I really had a punch. Now, was that trained, or you think that was just natural? I mean, well, were, you I was, like going to, were you going to, like, serious boxing gyms and taking it seriously, or no, just? I was always taking it seriously, but just not going to gyms. You know, at home, I was taking it seriously, because anybody that came in the basement saw a bag that was ripped, you know, a worn-out bag or holes through the bag from punches. And like the uh, one behind you. <laughs> like that bag there. And I had to keep putting, you know, they wouldn't give me bags eventually. They had to give me uh you know, those things that you put over it, the canvases that you slide up because they wouldn't give me the, yeah. I was breaking them all the time. They said Everlast. So, uh, you know, even at 16, I was breaking those punching bags with my punches and I was only 150 pounds. I couldn't bench press anything, but I could punch really hard. So when I got in fights and all that, um, because I trained hard, punching hard, you know, I, I tried to figure out how to put my foot this way or that way, how to put my body this way or that way, different positions and, you know, through all that experimentation, whether or not I was on anything or not, it really made me train hard. And I did thousands and thousands of reps just experimenting. So you were obsessive already as a teenager in high school sure. about figuring out and 
this way, that way, trying to figure out punching power. Punching power was like an obsessive compulsive thing with you, man. It, it, it was, but, but and then when I would spar, though, I couldn't. I really I realized that my my punching power is reduced to a fraction of what I could do on the punching bag. So that's why I really realized that sparring was important because you got to hit somebody moving away, or you got to hit somebody punching at you. Yeah. You have to that. You have to overcome fear and all that kind of stuff and all the psychological issues that you have when you're when you're actually fighting somebody because when they're punching at you and you're not experienced, you close your eyes too. You know. You close your eyes and you just start swinging. <laughs> what What would you think? What would you consider not like a childish tag sparring, but the first time you like really, really like we're gonna throw down until you drop to a knee? Can you remember a certain story where you had someone over when you were sixteen, seventeen, or when you went to a, a boxing gym, or what? Do you have any stories of yeah. the first time I, it wasn't like play tag, but like we're really gonna go at it? I had lots of challenges, you know, people, older kids, stronger kids, bullies that thought because I was smaller or thinner that they could uh, come over and box. And, and I was, and I was somebody that wouldn't give them any problem, you know? And so when they found out I could, and I'd go toe to toe with a guy that outweighed me and uh, they would uh, never come back again, you know? And then they'd come back seven years later, they got into, they, they got into street. Well, I broke their spirit because I'm just a kid in the basement, you know? So they, they thought, well, how good can they be if they have aspirations for being, you know, the heavyweight champion or whatever they want to do? They can't beat the kid in the basement, right? Wait, so, were, your, were your parents uh, a little crazy? Like, George, we, we see strange kids walking out going like yeah. this, hold up. <laughs> or yeah. like your Slavic background, so it was fine. She would say something like, you know, you know, but she would warn me, you know, she'd say, you know, if these any of these guys came in and they could uh, get the best of you, you know, they're trying to do that. She never says stuff like that, but she came out and said that. And I go, don't worry about that. You know, I know that. <laughs> and, so you're uh, building confidence from, from being like skinny kid getting picked on. It sounds like at some point you really realized you got punching power and you were yeah, boxing with guys and yeah, but you gain confidence now. Well, because you don't know what you can do until people tell you. You know, you, when you start comparing yourself to other people, you know, I just – a lot of people were telling me, oh, I, I hit real hard. Stop hitting so hard, you know, because they were getting hurt. <laughs> I didn't know that that was hard. I didn't know how hard it should be. I didn't. And they kept telling me it was hard. So these guys, a lot of these guys later when we grew up, they went to, uh, you know, box in the ring and, and event, certain events and tournaments and everything. And they'd come back to me, you know, they'd come back later on and they want to spar with me after uh, they developed and they achieved something you know they were 10 and 0 or whatever they were and they still couldn't uh do anything to me and they kept telling me you got to go in the ring you, you got to go in the ring man you got to go in the f I, I didn't want to do that though you know i never was interested in that kind of you know event so i just sparred with a lot of people that became something after a while so 1819s when like mike tyson was really blowing up and is that when you even got more serious about it yeah and when i when Mike Tyson came in, I really got into studying Mike Tyson a lot. Yeah. And uh, um, just just the way he punched and how sharp he was and how accurate he was, especially at that time. You know, there was nobody like him. I mean, look what he oh, did yeah. to Travis Burbank. Listen, there was, at 21, he's the youngest heavyweight champion. Youngest man who ever became heavy champ, heavyweight champion. And how, the ease at how he hit Trevor Burbick with a left hook in the forehead like it was just a casual thing, like it was nothing. 
and he knocked him down three times with one punch. Right? The guy just kept getting up and he kept falling down. And nobody expected that. I'll tell you that everybody that saw the punch didn't think it was hard. And they even you know George Foreman, whoever was there ringside, they didn't even think it was hard. But it was hard because it went right through and it was done effortless and casual. And that guy could not get up. He's his. And it, I mean, he got he had hit right in the temple or right here, you know. And and that was that was it for him. He he was out of there. And and you don't see that. You never see that happen. And Tyson was so unique in, in how he would knock people out and how hard, uh, you know, he would hit and how sharp he, he could hit, you know. And uh, But what if, like, a nerd gave up Aikido or another style and did a highly functional martial art like jiu-jitsu or Muay Thai because that's what everyone says. Do you think as long as they're doing one of those, they could go beat Mike Tyson even now? That's what they think. See, that's, you know, that's what's funny. It's like throw all this, you know, with, the, with Bruce Lee's to say that, the man is more important than the style. Throw that out and forget about it. Like just erase history, right? Because we don't want to hear that. But uh, I believe what he said, which is that, you know, it's perception, timing, and it's attributes. That's what makes anything good. On anything. I mean, if I'm a guitar player, if I have attributes, I can play better and faster and everything else. It's not, it's not the guitar. I can't just buy the, the guitar. It's not going to do anything for me. It's, it's, it's me. It doesn't matter. What it, everyone's looking for the easy fix to just buy the yeah. guitar. We're like, but, oh, now you say jujitsu is the best, so I can do that. But now I'm Muay Thai, and yet they're not getting in the ring themselves. No. They like think that they can do because they want to brag to their friends, like I'm doing the cool thing now. Well, there's this thing, the term they always throw around, this narrative. It's called functional martial arts. As long as you're doing a functional martial art, you could take on anyone who doesn't. That includes Mike Tyson, right? That includes Mike Tyson. Oh, I'll just I'll just Muay Thai kick him in the leg. Mike Tyson can't deal with leg kicks. Or Mike Tyson will be so easy to take down. Yeah, because to them, because that's what they're sold. That's what the industry, that's what the business has sold them and told them so that they buy their tapes, so that they buy their stuff. And they're not being realistic about it. You know, just be honest. Just be honest. Don't lie to everybody just to get them to buy your tapes. Yeah. So. You know? Um, so, okay. I'm curious, did you ever, you ever ended up getting more serious in boxing, went down to the cronk and you sparred some yeah. big, big names? And was that before you were dabbling with like going to JKD and Wing Chun schools and Silat schools and stuff or what? Take us through the timeline a little bit. Well, let's see. Uh, yeah, I was still involved in jujitsu in my twenties, in my late twenties. And I was, uh, really big too. I was 255 pounds. I was really into weightlifting. So I got in the weightlifting at around 21. And I really, so throughout, so for about eight years there, yeah, I got pretty big. I got pretty strong. And so then I went to the Kronk gym and I was sparring heavyweights. And uh, I uh, sparred, uh, let's see, Michael Moore before he fought uh, George Foreman. I fought, uh, uh, Hearns's brother, I think his name is Johnny Hearns, one of the Hearns brothers. You sparred so Michael Moore and, and Tommy Hearns's brother? Not Michael Moore, the guy, you know, Michael Moore. Everybody, everybody, everybody is so, no. Now that's a pay per view I would buy. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I'd throw good money to see that. 
It wouldn't yeah. last long, but I'd pay some good money. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Dan, it's like, as you know, you know, if you're going to do any of that, you got to take a good punch. You know, if you're a sparring partner, you can't be a glass jaw sparring partner. So, how was it getting in the ring with those guys? When they hit you, you stayed hit. You know, uh, they, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a whole different scale, you know, than what you're used to. You got to get used Meaning to it. Meaning it doesn't just leave out after a second. Like, oh my no. God, I just got, it's, it stays with you. It stays, it stays with you. Yeah. Sometimes all day, <laughs> you know, you have a headache. Right. But, uh, you, you know, it was definitely something that got me used to, you know, like then later on when I, when I got into STEM and then I, I was getting punched, I could easily handle getting punched. So we were standing there, you know, because I got punched all my life and I was used to boxing. So psychologically, I mean, not even physically yet, learning the system way of taking it, but psychologically, you're already okay with the fact that someone's hitting you. Yeah. See, that's that's what that's what contact and real punches do is they make it so it's not a big deal anymore, and then you have you can control yourself because you don't have that fear anymore. Okay, so I think I remember when we meet, and I think you remember it a bit different. It might have been at a Holson seminar. I, my first memory is that outside the JKD school, um, and I don't know, I'd like to know what your background was before being in either of those places where you already dabbed, because you already like showed some awesome Wing Chun trapping in that movie. So did you already have Wing Chun and Silat and stuff like that yeah. before yeah. we met? Yeah, I did, because that was when, like, when I was 16, I was doing Wing Chun. I was really involved okay. with Wing Chun. You know, every time, ever since I got into, you know, what Bruce Lee was doing and Bruce Lee was doing Wing Chun. So I was really into that, you know, for the longest time. And then, you know, then I learned about C-Lot. And when I met you, I was doing a lot of different versions, you know, of C-Lot. Bootkin Agaro being one of them. And uh, Monday Muda was was the other one. And uh, Mafalindo. And, and, you know, Dan Osana was really promoting that. So, you know, yeah. in, in his whole curriculum there, you know, that was one of the arts. Those are the arts... To, to study if you want to learn the blade, if you want to learn knife fighting. You know, then, then if you want to learn kickboxing and boxing and everything, you learn, you know, Muay Thai and kickboxing and all that. And you just kind of use all those arts, you know, get good at all those arts. That was a good idea. I mean. So I think we met 98, maybe 99, but I think 98. Something like that, yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you, uh, what do you remember? Was it at the JKD school or was it? I don't know if we met. You might have been there. House and Grace. Uh, House and Gracie did a seminar. That's right. At that, that, um, this blue belt, I moved, I left college yeah. to drive the other state just to train with this blue belt. Uh, Lee Miles, um, had a school, right? Um, uh, so in an area that I grew up in. So, um, Helson. It was under Hoyce and Helson and Kaiki, and at that time it was under Helson. Um, so Helson Gracie was, I, I did a bunch of early seminars in 97 uh, with yeah. Helson Gracie, and you might have been there uh, for that. You want to talk about your experience with, with Helson? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I sparred with, with Hoyce Gracie, and then you sparred with Helson Gracie. Helson Gracie felt like a statue in comparison, you know, and Helson Gracie was very powerful. I remember yeah. being very, yeah, because. He lifted me up very easily, and I was 250 pounds at the time. So you know, you could be trying triangling his neck, 
And he could just stand up and look, no, no hands, you know, and just lift you with it with his neck and let you hang around, hang off of his neck with your legs. So that's a strong person, you know. So he got that way, not from weightlifting, but from, from grappling all his life. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, it is a sport. And if you're a football player, whatever you are, you're strong because you're doing that sport. Yeah, he's, he's doing grappling and he's got pretty strong doing it. That's why, you know. But the Gracie sold us on that. It was kind of marketed as size and strength doesn't matter. And yeah, that's what they did. And Helio, Helio Gracie was a weak, frail man. Well, the, the thing even is, though well, he was a swimming champion that rescued a boy, supposedly, from drowning. That's right. uh, but, but then Judo Jean LaBelle had freakish strength, right? Yeah. So we're talking about freakish strength. A guy could wrestle a bear. I don't think he did that with no strength. <laughs> so strength and other attributes, precision, sensitivity, timing, distance control, all this stuff matters. It doesn't really matter so much what style you're clinging to. Well, you know, if you were doing gymnastics, you're developing your body. I mean, look at them guys. They're all ripped and strong because they're throwing their weight around all the time. You know, and... So before we go on, so I, I, until a week ago, I didn't, I forgot, I didn't even know you had rolled with Hoist. You rolled at Hoist at some seminar. Uh, what was that experience like? And did you mention a difference between strength between what you felt from Hoist and what you felt from Helson? Yeah, I did. There, there was like different styles there because Hoist was was uh, soft, relaxed, but he was strong too when he put on the lock. Except that if he did, okay, he so he would flow until he got the lock, and then it was on. Um, well, because I was big, so he would wear you out. He would take a big guy and wear him out. And then he would go for it. You get complacent, you know, you get lost or exhausted. And then he'll turn on the strength. He's got strength yeah. too on the locks. If he puts a triangle. Yeah, with those guys, when I was early on, when I would go with top guys, when I was just a blue belt or early purple belt, is like I could go with top black belt or name guys and yeah. I'd be great for about 20, 25 minutes. And then it, it, like you brain fart. You get tired, yep. you're in the guard, whatever, and boom, they throw up a triangle. So mostly me, it's like water dehydration for my brain, I think. You're yeah. good until you, you make that brain fart. Yeah, um, but you don't, you don't want to do that in the street because it takes too long. If you're on the street, you know, and you, and you have to play chess. I don't want to play chess in the street. People can come up behind me and kick over my uh, chess pieces, and, and me too. <laughs> yeah, so you don't necessarily want to rely on, I'm going to cook a guy for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 90 minutes, like Hoist versus Sakuraba, the first fight, or uh, three over three hours, um, uh, a fight that happened in Brazil. You you don't necessarily want to rely on that. And guys, I'm not disrespecting the Gracies. Anyone listening in, I do have a black belt jiu-jitsu. It's one of my four black belts. I trained at a lot of Gracie Machado schools back in the day. Um, so I'm not saying that, but I'm saying revisionist history and marketing and marketing martial arts, a lot of that stuff happens. <laughs> um, so I like the comment on Helio, I'm not disrespecting Helio, but the fact of the matter is he was portrayed uh, as if like, oh, he had to change the judo to jujitsu because he was so small and frail and weakly. He, he might've been small, but he was, he was, you know, most of the Gracies are tall, lanky, Strong, 
legs, even if they're not that thick. They had a wiry strength to them. He was a swimming champion, and so uh, that's what I'm saying here. So before I get too much flack, I need to <laughs> kind of say that. Um, so, and then, now this is late 90s already. So you were already like Wing Chun and Silat. You were big in a Silat, I think, in the 90s, early 90s. By the time we met, um, maybe there, maybe not. And then we're at the JKD school. Because, guys, I used to train all over. Uh, we kind of, you know. I used to drive all over the state just to get what I could, especially yeah, you, with the yeah. in 1995. I was driving around like crazy. So, I mean, a, that Gracie school was 45, 50, like 50 minutes away from the JKD school that me and you were at at the JKD school. You were Dan Severn. I was also you, two hours the other direction was Dan Severn. Yeah. So, I mean, literally, I used to put miles like crazy just to train uh, in the best styles, the best instructors, whatever I could find. And then I was, yeah, I mean, so literally I was going to all three of those schools at the same time back in 97, 98, 99, uh, 2000 probably. I was driving all over to different sides of the state. Yeah. So that JKD school, that's when I talk about like I would either do two hours of jiu-jitsu during the noon class, two, noon to two, rest, take a nap, eat, drive to Dan Severn's, leave at 5, get there at 7, train 7 to 9, 9.30, and then spend the night on his couch, drive back the next day, do jiu-jitsu, or go to the JKD school, spend three hours at the JKD school doing jikuno for an hour, Muay Thai or Muay Thai Savat or Savat for an hour, and then like either jiu-jitsu, I think it was under Machado's at the time, until the Brazilian top team guy I trained with moved to Michigan for six months and uh, Shudo. So it was kind of like Shudo or Jiu-Jitsu or just Shudo. So I would be doing all that stuff. And then uh, I, uh, then we were at the JKDU school. And the first memory I have is you and me just chatting, chatting, chatting after I probably already trained three hours. And then we're in the uh, back alley at the JKDU school. I don't know if you have earlier. Do you have an earlier memory? Because that was when I decided to first come over to your house. Do you ever I remember. Do you remember that back alley thing? I remember that. So, George, I go out back with George, guys, and my memory is that you say uh, attack me or throw a punch at me or throw a combination at me or whatever, and George just starts toying with me like I'm a puppet, and he's the puppeteer, and I got no control over my body. And you were doing a lot of C-Lot style um, sweeps, perfectly timed, like Perry Perry, and sweeping open my base with the slot style sweeps. Yeah, that was that uh, was pretty fun. That was fun stuff. Yeah, so that you were was very good with that stuff. Then that stuff isn't easy to pull off. You know, the the C-Lot guys all do that in demos, uh, like choreographed. But to pull that kind of timing and and precision to pull off those style foot sweeps to open up my base and trip me up and take me down where you're like, Oh, here I could break your knee if I fall on it with my knee and all that kind of stuff George was doing. And I think at some point you're like, yeah, but that's not the real stuff lately. I'm working on come over to my house and I'll show you. I think it was something like that. <laughs> Does that sound right? Yeah. You're right. And now I was showing you more stuff. Yeah. I just did that. And so then I did a little bit just to get just to see how you reacted when you. I saw you really liked it, you know. That's why I said I'll show. Yeah, you I'll did. show you. 
which was Sistema. So you, when did you first really get into Sistema and become aware of Sistema and start going up to train with Vladimir uh, Vasiliev up in Toronto? Well, immediately when I went and actually seen him, because that's what I'm going to say is you got to feel it. Because you cannot look at this stuff on YouTube and believe it or, or get excited about it or have faith in it. You've got to feel it, you know, and uh, that was something that I didn't either. You know, I was just looking at videotapes. He had some videotapes out and I didn't get too excited about that, but I was really interested in going and checking people out. And I decided I was going to go up to Toronto just to check him out as my last one. I'm not going to do it anymore. My girlfriend at the time was getting upset. You know, and uh, we weren't doing anything. Every time we went anywhere, it wasn't a vacation. It was always to check out some martial arts expert, right? So she she was sick of that. She was getting tired of that. So it was putting a strain on her relationship doing all that. So I said, look, we'll go to Toronto and we'll spend the time there. No martial arts, nothing. But I am going to check out one man. That's it. And I promise that'll be it. And because. Uh, and she goes, no, I know what happens to you. You always, you always get, uh, you know, sucked in there. And I go, no, he's not going to be good. Don't worry about it. He won't even be good. I'll, I'll, I'll just like everyone else, I'll just get tired of it and I'll leave. You know, I just want to check this one guy out. That's it. And uh, <laughs> well, guess what happened? That last guy turned out to be the best guy. You know, so uh, I told her, what am I got? I got swept. I couldn't. You know, she recorded the thing. You know, I was working out with Vladimir. He was throwing me around, and uh, I. This is when I was, you were big too. Yeah, I wasn't used to that. I was not you, used to that. You were well over two hundred pounds at that point. That's when you were pretty big, still not the hugest you were, but you were probably two twenty at least, right? I'm six foot two. I was six foot two, two hundred and thirty pounds, and uh, I've I've been a martial artist all my life. I can hit really hard. I can do. I do all the stuff. I grapple and I give everybody a hard time. You know, win or lose, win or lose, nobody just dismisses me. So here, here, this guy's dismissing me, <laughs> right? So it made me believe in magic all over again, like when I was twelve. What do you mean? He, so what happened? Can you describe? I mean, you were trying to like. He's like throw punches at me, and he threw punches at him. What happened? Well, when I went into the class, I wasn't real impressed with the students, though. You know, the people that were there did not impress me. They were bumping me with their hips and doing extra things. If you, if you, and I thought, well, wh why do that? Just hit somebody, you know. I was always just hit somebody. Don't mess around and play with them. And I kind of felt that they were doing a lot of unnecessary things. Okay. And it wasn't, yeah. And so I was going to leave. I wasn't. Gonna, I wasn't that interested until he called me over, George Kamir. <laughs> And then he just uh, changed my whole world. It was like he was hitting with several different hands. Like he had extra hands. We did Chizau, something that was like Chizau, you know. Uh, and then all of a sudden the punch would come out of nowhere. And I still thought I was holding his hands. So uh, it, it was beyond just somebody who had power. It was tricky and sneaky and deceptive as anything you could imagine. It's like a magician, you know. Highly deceptive. It's like, like a, it's like, on, boom, you get hit with shots underneath you don't even see, right? That's right. That's right. It was so, it was so, it was unbelievable uh, to me what was happening at that stage of my life and experience. And, I mean, I thought I experienced everybody. I was at the Kronk Boxing Gym. I wrestled a Hoist Gracie and Helson Gracie. 
I met Dan Osano. I I did all that stuff, and this guy here is 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 making them look like rank amateurs. Uh, can you speak to what I? Even if people don't want to believe the punching power and taking punches thing, which is huge from Sistema, can you speak to Vladimir's precision? Which precision means you have to have timing and distance control to be able to pick stuff up, you know, just like that, which you yeah. also have. And I'm like, Good. if you only look at one attribute, just precision or timing and distance, just timing, uh, it's it's like off the charts, right? Yeah, it's it's uh it's really good reading, you know, because he could read you really well, you know, uh, like as soon as you think that you're gonna do something, he's on to you, and it makes you paranoid because you already know he he, he knows what you're gonna do next. So it's you know? almost not even just perceiving, not even just perceiving you're starting to move telegraphing, but almost even before that, and and right, samurai Daniel. have four phases of the. Uh, uh, in Miyamoto Musashi talked about four different phases of an attack and you can like wait till someone's attacking yeah. just as they start to attack or just as they think to attack. Right. So and it's almost and like they're picking it up just as you think to attack, right? Well, well, can you grapple your, your reflection in the mirror? Can you grapple your reflection in the mirror? No, I don't care I what you it's at the same time. I don't have reaction speed or OODA loops like a second and a half behind line. No matter how good you are, you can't grapple your reflection in the mirror. You can't grapple your image, right? So so if someone were to be able to move like that, they would be just like that reflection. It means What it means is there'd be no difference. Total harmony, perfect harmony, and no difference. Because you can only win if you can create a difference on somebody else. So it doesn't matter what anybody knows or what style it is. If you create a difference, if they're behind and they don't perceive what's happening, they're they're going to lose because they can't perceive what's happening. It doesn't matter what style it is. What good are you so if you can't perceive? Yeah, so we're talking perception and we're talking like uh, time perception. If if you, like, you have to slip and react, and let's say an untrained person's a second and a half, and a trained boxer's a second to parry and punch back, but if you can speed up the processing speed like a CPU, yeah, like a to, CPU, yeah, to get it where it's almost instantaneous, yeah, way before these other. I mean, you had already felt trained martial artists that can like, oh, you got you got good vision and can pick stuff up pretty fast. You've already felt that. And this was, instead of a second and a half, this is like a half a second or even less. Or just as the guy was starting to think, which I can occasionally, when I'm really tired, I occasionally do that too. Where like, I went before the guy even realized he was thinking to start shifting his weight that way. And I sweep him to the ground. Right. And not, not only that, but you know, like a mirror moves the same speed you are, right? So that's almost like a blending thing. How do you do it? Because you do the same thing. How do you do that? How do you move the same way, George? Well, if I'm relaxed, I'm more sensitive. You know, and some people say, well, to relax so you can perceive something like that, you got to breathe and you got to do all these things, you know. But, you know, I, I believe that it's it's better to be psychologically prepared. You know, because the breathing will just happen, and the relaxation will happen by being psychologically relaxed. You know, and 
and sensitive. And knowing your body, knowing what's going on in your body. You know how like when you have like uh, anxiety, sometimes it builds up to the point where you can't deal with it. Well, it's like recognizing those things that come in, those anxieties and those fears, recognizing at the smallest level when they come into your body and being able to be sensitive to those and relax them away. And uh, you develop a, a sensitivity that way uh, to where you can pick up on other people. It, it's kind of like you quiet yourself down, you know, like um, I once said that if you throw a pebble in raging waters, you can't hear it, right? You can't hear the pebble in raging waters. But if it's a pond and you throw a pebble, it's a still pond. You can notice all the ripples that were there. They were all there, but in that noisy water, you couldn't detect them, right? Yeah. So, so it's it's that it's you have to get rid of all that noise in you so that you could respond to your opponent. And maybe eliminating that noise and that stress and being relaxed is even in MMA why you see a guy like Anderson Silva when he was younger in his prime is like a leap and above on a different level than every other steroided up big haymaker guy who if Anderson flinched or any modern guy or Conor McGregor or whoever, that if you're scared of getting hit, if you're psychologically have fewer intention, you're going to flinch just from them doing a fake or a faint. You're going to, oh, sure. you're, you're already, you've already lost in essence. You could be in shape and be juiced and do your cardio and all that. Yep. But you, there is a very different level between the guys that become champions and guys that are number five through ten. Yeah. And there's a big and, difference in boxing, right. MMA, whatever, martial arts in general, fighting, whatever. So that that starts from psychologically, and that starts from being used to sparring and taking hits and not being scared of another man. And if you're scared of another man and someone cocks their arm back, if someone telegraphing their big, oh, my God, their big scary punch is I cock my elbow back, whereas or yell the person not scared will be like, dink. <laughs> you just telegraph. They just go. I just, as Bruce Lee said, it just hits on its own. Right. You're not, but if you're afraid, you can't do nothing about it and you can't perceive. It, it, fear is the killer because if you're afraid of anything, you don't have your, that's all you, all you feel is the fear. And, and, you and, think, and now your reaction time is like two seconds instead right. of being like the but mirror is close to exactly or even right. synergy or even Aikido flowing with the guy being sensitive that that you want to be that that this is your goal well what is fear fear is tension right fear is tension or at least it turns into tension so so now think about this if you close your fist and you squeeze it really hard and you over squeeze it you don't have sensitivity you lose sensation in your hand because you can't no longer feel the weight of your hand if you relax your hand, you can feel the weight. You could go like this and feel its weight. When you close it like this, you don't feel it. it the whole thing tenses all the way up to the shoulder. And you when guys are like this, I have to unloosen to then re-contract uh, again. If I'm always contracted, I would have to tell my brain, it has to tell a nervous system to release to then do whatever I got to do. Whereas even guys in my hands-first biomechanics defense video, I'm trying to explain these concepts and even i saw a little loose cross face the other day uh, last night in the ufc it looked like it if you're loose my reaction speed is going to be faster because i don't have to un 
contract to then tell the muscle where to fire again. Like right. I don't have to, there, there's a whole, when I'm loose, I can just react. And that's part of the things I can do that other people can't. That's part of my takedown defense that other people can't. That's part of like my anti-cage tactics that other people can't. That's part of the grappling takedowns I do that look like Tai Chi or Bakwa that I do to people is because I'm loose, I can feel the sensitivity, whether that's in the actual sensitivity of your skin when you're in the clinch or you're grappling or whether that sensitivity with your eyes and perception, I think you're talking about sensitivity, not just physically, but sensitivity to what's going on and the guy's just starting to move and now I can I can flow and I can move, right? All of the above. Yeah. All those that you mentioned, feeling them simultaneously. Okay, so I'm glad we got out there a little bit. Um, what, how old or what year was it? So if you showed me a bit of system already in 98, when did you first go to Vladimir's? Do you know what year it was? Yeah, that was uh, 1996 or 97. Okay. So, guys, I was just blown away, and I go in to George's, and a couple times we privates at his apartments, and, and like, he's putting me through all these crazy exercises and, and showing me more and more of Sistema. And I keep <laughs> – you might want to talk about it. Well, do you remember training me back then and what I was like? And I also, like, mentally, psychologically, I wanted to deny things. I'm like, no, that can't be real. Yeah. Well, I would, it was a good thing that I was able to do some of the things I was showing you some of those masters were doing on video because you thought that uh, it, it, was, it couldn't have worked. And I, I showed you a couple moves that I could do. And um, you felt it for me. You felt me do it to you. And I think that's what it took, too, to eventually you know get you to believe it over the years is because I was able to do it to you. And uh, the biomechanics stuff that I was doing was different. And, uh, and I, I, I don't think you've seen it before. I never seen it before. And, um, and I, th I remember giving you lots of exercises too. Cause I said, you know, these don't think that these people aren't in shape. Like, you know, in the keto, they think like a lot of people are not in shape, you know, when they do it, you know, but to think that the Russians are not, in they don't work out, you know, it's like, that. it's, that's crazy. If anybody, if you go to, if you go see Vladimir, he will, you'll be so, you'll be, <laughs> you'll be a noodle. You won't even be able to lift your arms anymore. You won't be able to stand. Your legs will be so sore. I mean, the calisthenics are brutal. And I remember I remember showing you uh, some of those calisthenics because I thought they were very unique, and I was, I was putting you through the paces. I was amazed by how you could recover. i never seen anybody recover. I, I, I put a lot of people through those paces, and uh, they were wiped out after that. You know, their thighs, their uh, quads were just done. I mean, they were just exhausted. They couldn't get up. And uh, you would would fall down, looking like you can't get up, and then re and bounce right back up again. And then I'd give you more sets to do, and I'd give you more sets to do, and I'm putting you through it. And you you'd fall down and recover, and just bounce right back up again. I got tired of standing there, so I sat down <laughs> while I was uh, telling you to do these. You know, so uh, like George, I'm not coming over here just to do burpees and push-ups. <laughs> I was amazed at, at, at how you would recover back then. You had like a, an amazing amount of uh, recuperative powers and endurance, muscular endurance, like like lactic acid. There's a guy like that I saw in some show, Superhumans, where he didn't Superhuman have lactic family, yeah. You remember he, he didn't have lactic acid, he could, uh, bothering inflammation, he could run forever, something like that? Well, I think as you pointed out earlier, we're all different. <laughs> 
And I do have a bit of a super ability in that way, honestly. Not as much lately, but even sometimes now, I'll be like, I can't even get through a jiu-jitsu warm-up. I'm dying, but especially as I get older. But once I warm up, sometimes at the end of class, I'm like out there and my brain's not thinking. And like, okay, now I'm ready to go and everyone's leaving. I'm like, why is everyone leaving? Oh, we've been, <laughs> we've been grappling. We did a class for a half hour and we do go on live rolls for an hour. Yeah, so you're, you got the second wind you can keep going. Yeah, so once I hit that, that yeah, second wind, I'm like – and sometimes especially, and I can start doing crazy, and I'm throwing these guys that are good grapplers around and stuff. Sometimes I get to this almost higher level, um, and it is crazy. And I do have recuperative uh, abilities, unlike others. But, you know, genetically, I am different. I have lupus. And so what people don't – sometimes I could go like three – back back when, I, when you knew me first, when I was first in an MMA and I'm going to be a fighter and stuff, 97 – even 95, when I really, really started taking martial arts seriously and cross-training in a bunch of different styles, right. I, I would train for like three and a half hours hard. I'd lose four or five pounds of water weight in my T-shirt sweat and sweat. So, I mean, I wow. used to just go and go and go. And maybe after the first hour of a JKD class, I'd be tired. I'd take one 30, 40 seconds before running back out, sip some water, take a deep breath, and boom, I'm back. And even now, I'll still, like, burst breathe. I just need a couple of those, and boom, I'm back. Uh, and so yeah. I do have a unique ability, but people don't see the next day, especially now that I'm older with my lupus, I, I can't move the next day. I'll, those guys will be leaving. I'll be like, hey, come on, come on. I used to like, come on, let's go another round. Come on, let's go another round. But an hour after when I get home, I can barely walk up the stairs. I mean, literally. Oh, so I'm, call, call, so I'm crawling call. sometimes. So that's when I'm still warm, it's like my body, the lactic acid threshold, it's like it's not happening until after I cool down. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. Anyway. But, and you had that punching ability. I mean, people are different. We talked about the uh, maybe you're a martial arts wizard on Viking Samurai. We kind of hinted at some of that. People have different things and different attributes naturally, let alone just trained attributes. But yeah, the punch, the, the punching uh, thing for me was when I realized you know, I had that natural ability. It inspired me to take it further. That's what it does. When you have when you're good at something, you you take it further, especially when you're a kid. So. Um, Let's let's go another five ten minutes on Sistema before we talk about UFOs. All right. So, um, if you would, what is Sistema? What did you get from it? I want to hear about if you ever trained with Ropko or felt his punch. Yeah. If you saw Ropko and Vasiliev going at it, and when I tell people they should know, I've trained with top martial artists, jujitsu instructors, the best MMA fighters around the world. When I say no one's like George and George's precision, George's movement, George's power, uh, I mean it. And then if you want to talk about what you feel from Vladimir and Mikhail Ropko, like hopefully that lends some credence. Like I have sparred all these top guys in different styles and different instructors, just like you, you know, you you did all these instructors in different styles. We have felt it all pretty much. Yes. So what is Sistema? What has it done for you? 
So if you started in 96 and you were already, you're 10 years older than me, you were already experienced martial artists, boxing. I think you had already boxed those guys down at the Kronk gym, top professional boxers. Yep. And then you feel Vladimir and it's like something different. Can you kind of discuss that, all that, please? Yeah, that was a transition. I was really into jujitsu too at the time when I went to see Vladimir. And uh, the, one, the one thing I, I remember I was, uh, we were at a seminar and Hoist Gracie had his whole, all these different schools participate from all over the place. And we had these grappling contests. You know, we'd be matched up with different people. And uh, I would just, I just remember that everybody knew the moves and it was just, uh, it came down to an endurance uh, contest. And there was no surprises anymore. It was interesting before, you know, it was more exciting because people didn't know it and you could tap them out and they'd do a dumb thing and, flip over and you would choke them but uh it wasn't happening anymore it was a with the guys that were really good then it, it became like an endurance thing so i started getting bored with that as like uh okay how hard do i want to work do i want to start training endurance and running and all that stuff again uh, so that's when i started looking around and i saw the saw vladimir and i went there and uh what it really is and i remember talking to a guy in the parking lot that was waiting to for the school to open that it, it almost seemed to me what he was saying and i believe it now that it wasn't a style the stemma wasn't a style there were scientific concepts there was there were concepts uh um of relax it wasn't like there, there might be like a couple a few different moves the way they do things like in aikido there's a lot of grabbing well you know sistema doesn't grab because you waste time closing your fingers or grabbing and you, you can't flow it with somebody as easy if you're grabbing because you're tensing up. Every time you squeeze your hands together, you, you're tensing up. So in, in a lot of ways, in some ways, it is a style. But for the most most of the part, most of that, it's, uh, it can enhance whatever you're doing. You know, uh, whatever, whatever you apply it to, it'll enhance. And it's also even therapeutic, you know, for people who, uh, who, who are stressful, anxious, you know, older person. So it's not, yeah. it's a system, it's you're the system. You're the system, yeah. And, and, and uh, because you're exploring how your mind works, how we are naturally. And one thing I, that I, I could, like, like I said, uh, I was telling people, I'll give you an example uh, how Sistema is. If, if you were outside and you turned around and you saw something fly towards your face, like a bee or a bird or something like that, what happens is you lean back. That's the thing that happens. The first thing that happens is you lean back because your brain, your motor functions does a scan throughout your body looking for the past part of least resistance in the body. So in that case, it's your hips. You don't have tension in your hips, so the body chooses that to lean back. That's why your hands don't come up But uh, because they're tense. Your shoulders are tense. Your arms are tense. So the only thing that's not, not tense is your hips. So you sway back away from something that catches you by surprise, comes at your face. But then if you overbend, you become tense again because you broke structure. So now you got more tension in your hips than you do your arms. So guess what happens? Your arms come up next. So when, you're, when your hips go too far, when you lean too far they, and tension builds up, then your arms have less tension and now that's the next thing that moves. So if that's how we're wired, if that's how it's going to be, then 
you're not going to be able to do some kind of a strange martial art thing because you want to. You, you could drill that all you want, but we all have the same reaction when something flies in our face. You know, you, you don't do a kung fu kata and hit the bee or bird out of the air. You just lean back because it went right at your face, no matter how good you are. So that's how we're wired. That's uh, that's Mother Nature. You can't change that. So if you're going to develop a move, why are we learning a system of horse stance and this big tension karate block when I could have just went and the punch misses without well, leaning back too much to get out of structure? Because right. everything I've been telling people lately, why can I? Why can I do these Aikido locks and certain other people I trained 15 years could never, ever do it for real? Because right, of right. base, base or balance. I have base. I have structure in my spine. Structure gives you a delivery system for punching power, by the way, and sensitivity. The big, wide sensitivity we talked about earlier, whether that's seeing the punch and reading what the guy's doing very early on or the sensitivity me I have as a grappler that other people, even really good jujitsu people, don't have to the high level that I do for whatever reason. Probably because I was open-minded to things like Tai Chi and Aikido and Sistema and just being open-minded, even if I didn't train them that much. Right. Just because I'm open-minded, right. like, oh, attributes. So you agree with me, base, spinal structure, and sensitivity are kind of the pillars to judge a martial artist on, doesn't matter what the style is. Right, because the correct structure gives you relaxation. Because your muscles are, you're, if you're off structure and you're off balance, then your muscles have to be engaged to overcompensate. And that's tiring. That's and right. slow, because you have to yep. release to go do, instead right. of just do. Right. So structure and posture is very important, so you can unhinge those tense muscles. Before we leave this, I want to get you get a little bit more from you on Vladimir and Robko, if you could. Um, you hold your center, which they talk about in Aikido. Yeah. To to you, it's so like if me and you fought, you're not going to chase me around a big room. I mean, you could just walk at me and terminate me, and I think you might do that. But mostly, it's self defense. You're just centered. Your spine. Your center and if i come in to attack i come in your little bubble to attack you then that's real self-defense like you hold your center because you're strong and even seagull now let alone his movies early on i i did a commenting think on on steven seagull and whatever people think of him i did a video breaking down his five uh five early movies when he was really at the top of his game right and he is very tall Everybody bends over and gives me their neck, and I'm like, you're walking into a knee and an uppercut and a guillotine. Why do people give up their spinal structure? We're bipeds. Whereas George walks into a room, and you have a presence about you with a strong spine, and I think you hold your center that you don't care about a punch that's three feet too outside. Like you hear some of the lower-level people in the UFC going, eh, 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 and they're just punching air. You care about if it's... And then you'll move a little bit while not moving too much. Without right. bending over so much in your balance and your structure, you'll keep your center. Can you talk about that, like your center? Does that mean I, anything to you? Yeah, I can do that because I'm not afraid of the punch. If I was afraid of the punch, I would, I would move too much. Yeah, overreact. Too far outside to even counter. 
Right. So it's very important that you're not afraid of the punch so that you can let it just go by you so that it doesn't matter to you if it lands or not. Because then, then you'll have control of it. You'll have sensitivity, and you'll have you'll you um, you'll be able to see things that you didn't see because you're not upset. You're not fearful. When you're fear when you're fearful, you're going to blind yourself. You'll distract yourself. When you're concerned, let's with go a little bit at some of the Sistema students. Then, if they've never sparred, they've never gotten hit in the face in their life. But they just focus on only breathing and movements. Oh, they only focus on movements. Do you think mistake. when a guy my size gets in their face and starts throwing real punches at them, like a boxer, MMA fighter, even if it's tense, <laughs> do you think psychologically they're going to stay relaxed? Or do you think they'll crush because they actually still have fear of punches that they never got over in the first place? No, there's pain involved. This is a hurt business. You know, in martial arts, it's a hurt business. You got to deal with the pain, and you can't run away from it. And those who do that, that neglect that part of training and dealing with the pain and dealing with the exhaustion. And, uh, you know, they're not going to, they're just, they're fooling themselves. They'll never be able to fight with it. If all you do all think, right, what, yeah. What do you think of Robco? Should everyone make fun of him just because he's a, a chubbier, older guy? Or what have you seen in person? Have you felt his punch in person? Oh, yeah. And did you yeah, see him ever like going against Vladimir? Yeah, I did. Uh -huh. Talk about that, please. Yeah, when I um, I thought Vladimir, you know, when I first met him, was like a product of the government, the Russian government. You know, like a just a lot of just in the military. You know, and he's was really good because he learned from lots of people. I didn't know that he had like a single teacher. And uh, when he showed me who that teacher was, I couldn't believe it. I thought he was. I thought he was kidding. You know, because uh, as good as he was, I couldn't believe this fat guy could be his teacher, <laughs> right? And um, uh, when he said he was going to bring him here for a seminar, it, I, 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 I was trying to envision this, you know, some guy. Because all my life, you know, Bruce Lee, Rip Dabs, all my Tyson, everybody that I've ever seen was in really good shape. And now there's this fat guy who could beat them all up. Yeah, it's all look. It has to be look. That's what makes the guy strong is yeah, steroids yeah. and lifting weights. And everybody thinks that, you know, when we're following this guy or we're listening that we're all – we must be terrible martial artists and have no no degree of common sense following that guy, right? I know how ridiculous it looks and what people think. They we're, think all we're all crazy. Yeah, they think we're all stupid, that we never fought before. We never did anything that we're just so naive that we could be fooled by – this big fat guy, and uh, he's, he's actually he's only five foot five, I think. Uh, he's not really that 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 uh, that tall of a guy, but uh, but I remember um, when I went up against him, I couldn't see anything he did. I, and and his punches were so deep that they went all to your to your spine, and you worried if you were gonna hemorrhage. <laughs> I mean, you you felt like that, you know, internal hemorrhaging. You felt, you know, life and death when he would just play. He would just put his fist in your in your gut, and he's just making contact before he accelerates. When he accelerates, it goes into your spine, and all you're worrying about is uh, your health. <laughs> you don't care. You don't. So even without winding up, if he just puts his hand there and you're moving into him to attack or whatever, and he just he just goes from contact on your t-shirt. To uh, just like a 
a, a piston, just like a, a robot. Boom. Like Terminator. You'll you know feel so much pressure like it's a Mack truck hitting you. Yeah, but there's this psychological thing of unexpected, too. You know how, like, if you're walking and you're talking to your friend and you you walk into a pole, the end of oh, a yeah. pole, like it was a steel pole and it doesn't move? That's what it feels like where you just cracked your body open or, you know, you're wondering if you're going to have to go to the hospital now because you felt it go out of your spine. You didn't see that pole while you were walking and you weren't even walking that fast. Uh, but but because it doesn't move and because you're walking at it and you're not paying attention, boom, you know, and uh, that's how he feels like you're not paying attention. Plus, you got the impact that's going so deep because you can't predict it. You can't you can't tell when he's going to do it or not. It's like throwing a brick up in the air and not knowing when it's going to come down. You know, it disappears. It's at nighttime. If you're at night or something, you throw a brick up in the air. <laughs> well, you also say he has. Like an immovable center, it doesn't matter if he's heavy. Like you have to reach him to attack him. He, he doesn't need to be a young athlete in shape chasing you around a room or an octagon. If you go to attack him, he's got a strong center. He puts his fist there, and boom, you're dead. That's right. Like you know, it almost. Look, there's a lot of bullshito guys out there. Okay, and there's a lot of like karate instructors out there that are fat, and people call me fat online, and I get a belly. But it's almost like. The better you are, the more it doesn't matter if you have cardio, if you're ripped, you could be chubby. Like, the better you are almost is like you're so good at the, that that stuff doesn't matter. Or if you're older. I mean, I'm 44. You're, what, 54? Yeah, 54. Yeah, it's not like you got to go run a marathon or run around an octagon chasing someone to beat them up. But if they come to really hurt you, you could deal with it. Yeah, right. That's what's good because as long as we live, we still have to defend ourselves. But we lose we we lose the ability to physically build by the age in our forties. We can't build like we did in our twenties. And if we have martial arts that are geared towards that, you know, being strong, build and all that, well, and you know, we gotta learn eventually what do we do from when we can't do those sports anymore, those sports fightings. And we have to still defend ourselves from forty-four on to you know eighty. Or as long as we live, you know, even if we're physically weak, we still have to figure out how to defend ourselves. It's a must. So, and by learning how to have as straight a spine as you can, even if you're older, by learning how to have balance in your center, and by learning how to hit deep and with power and perceive things, you could still defend yourself. Perceiving things is is key to doing all that. So, if you're not, if you if you're psychologically, if you control yourself psychologically, and your fears and your emotions. And you can perceive things, then you can use your force. You can use your strength and what you have, and that that'll continue on. You can, uh, you know, up until you're as long as you live. And for someone disabled, someone in a wheelchair, Sistema might be good because you could defend yourself and hit someone in a short distance and just chop them, and and be able to d defend yourself well, whether you're well elderly or uh, in a wheelchair or whatever, right? If you have those kinds of perceptions, okay, you know, you have to, and, and like I said, in order to have perceptions, you can't be fearful. And not everybody even doing systemic karate, aikido, or whatever. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody has that. Not everybody has gone through sparring and gotten rid of their fear of getting hit, like me and you right. have for the most part, right? Not everybody gets it. 
There's a lot so of not people everybody gets it if it's a stemma. Not everybody gets it if it's jujitsu. Not everybody gets it if it's Muay Thai. We're not all the same. Not everybody's as dedicated to martial arts or whatever that me, you are, or even out there mentally to be able to grab all these spatial relationships and concepts and principles that are really science, the system, not a system, not a style, but you, human. Well, I guess that leads us to our next topic. <laughs> George, are you a human? <laughs> are you going to come out and say at least you think ancestrally you have DNA from uh, aliens or pre-settlers or well, uh, world travelers? Last I checked, I did bleed. I cut my cut my thumb on the when I was trying to trying to uh, cut some cucumbers. I cut my thumb. Too much tension, I guess. And there was blood. It actually there blood. Yeah, okay. dark, dark red blood. <laughs> um, before I really get into it, anything else you want to say about Rapco? And can you say something about him? Is he legit? And did you see him working with Vladimir? Just one one minute before we move on. Yes, uh, like I definitely saw him working with Vladimir, and um, you know, Michael Rapco is so soft, so uh, so in tune, and so relaxed. You know that as quick as and as impressive as Vladimir is, you know he can't detect his punches. So it's 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 uh the sparring session that I saw was, you know Vladimir was a student to teacher man. Everybody has a teacher, and Rebko can handle him just like uh, anybody else. Did you ever get a sense from them, or did they say how did? Vladimir become a student of, I think, a colonel in the military. I mean, he's high up. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think it's when he got assigned to a Spetsnaz unit? Do you think Vladimir was in Spetsnaz? Yeah, 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 he was. And uh, I, I think that system was kind of an experiment. You know, they didn't waste it on anybody. Just anybody. They would take. They would give it to. They would train people with Sistema for those that they thought were gifted, you know, gifted athletes or if they were good Sambo guys and they were proven, if they were proven. And I think um, Vladimir was like the second champion of karate in Russia or something. That's mm -hmm. his background. So he excelled in uh, an area of combat, and I think that's why uh, he met uh, Rebko and he started teaching him. So he already excelled at movement and kicking and flexibility and precision to an extent. Yeah. And then maybe he gets assigned. He's already in the military. He gets assigned. I, I mean, I'm guessing gets assigned to a Spetsnaz unit, and they're going to give them someone like a colonel that was the son of Stalin's bodyguard that was trained since he was young, a very high level guy to teach him high level stuff as opposed to wasting that on the general military that's going to get military Sambo training. Right. right, right. And in fact, people don't realize, and uh, it was my theory a long time. And then I've seen it now on a um, website of the Kato Chinkov uh, style. Okay. Under Kato, my theory was that Sistema is really one of the three pillars of Sambo. And at least I found one website that seems to be saying this under, um, Spridinov. Spridinov, one of the, the three founders of Sambo, and I think I got this right. He had an injured arm from World War One, 
And my theory is instead of the more judo type, uh, well, the Chenkov, I got the name wrong, training in uh, Japan, and they got the judo and jiu-jitsu from Japan that really kind of was more towards the sambo and got shot in the head for claiming the Japanese too much when Russia wanted to say, no, 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 Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, Swedenoff had probably because of his injured arm is my guess probably is what really was one of the three pillars of Sambo, but became Sistema because he had to be more efficient. And I think they taught that. I think Sistema goes back to the KGB and Espetsnaz, and you didn't waste it on the regular military, but this was more to be hidden and deceptive. And if you want to assassinate somebody, you don't want to like, come at them with tension and be visible to everybody. You want to be able to kill them in a room full of people and no one saw a thing. Yeah. And also, you know, when you cross, when a soldier crossed enemy lines and he encountered dehydration, starvation and disease, he still had to survive against the enemy, you know, uh, even against the odds. So if even you were, against Germany in winter, which is a comment I made and no one picked up on that. So you can't just do that by being in shape. You got to be mentally in shape. You got to be psychologically in shape. You know, to to be able to deal with those kinds of conditions. So you can just imagine how difficult the training really was to prepare for something like that. It's not like it is now over here. You know. Yeah, and, and even specials now maybe isn't what they were going through before. You know, during the Cold War. Right. They were probably going through some crazy stuff. We know Horrible our military stuff. spent millions, or if not billions, of dollars researching out there stuff, anything to get an advantage. And these guys probably went through starvation, sleep deprivation. And I, I said something the other day, which probably is true, you know, going under barbed wire with RPKs, firing live rounds, not, not blank rounds over their heads, probably blood and guts. Uh, maybe even, maybe even, do you think maybe even like killing people on death row kind of thing? Like they, they were, some of these were trained assassins or the trained operators of, you know, a unit, and they probably wanted to desensitize them to violence and, and some pretty crazy things. Oh, yeah, they would uh, it'd break out of, uh, you know, one of the tests to be uh, a Spetsnaz was to uh, break out of a prison, you know, and fight everybody on the way out. And then in some rooms, you know, people, some of these uh, people that were, that were on death row were given the knife. And they were told that they'd be released and freed if they could uh, stop or kill the uh, Spetsnaz. And do, you, if, do you think that's true? Do you have any reason to think that, or is that just conjecture on our part? Did you ever get hinted to that way or saw anything that made you think that? Um, I, I, something like that doesn't surprise me. You know, it's it's uh, that's kind of how they think. That's their mentality, and um, you know, they really think out the, out of the box. And, uh, you know, to think that uh, – and, and you're expendable. So let's say the death row inmate kills you. Well, I guess who cares? You didn't pass. You weren't good enough then. So, yeah, people should realize that when you're talking about geopolitics. Uh, when you have a whole lot of people like Russia or China do, the things they're willing to do and, you know, expend people are expendable. I was probably leave it at that, but that's just something I think people should like think about when you're talking about countries like that, especially so Soviet Union, USSR, uh, back in the day, and 
and and and crazy things, which uh, leads us to our next topic. And uh, you know, Cato was what head of. Do you want to speak about Cato one second before we go on? I mean, he was head he, of like what? He's, yeah, a, he was, uh, he's a rocket scientist. He was a professor at the Krasnodar University, and uh, I guess his father won four times. Uh, the greatest award that you could ever win in Russia for heroic duties in the military, and he won it four times. So now, uh, now, 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 in in uh, Kadashinkov himself is, uh, you know, a physicist. Sorry, I'm banning an idiot. What? Oh, bye, bye, idiot! I'm banning an idiot. Oh no, we didn't want to promote the guy. We want to ban that idiot. Sorry. Guys, 42% off on my Combatives of Street Jiu-Jitsu DVD. You might find some Sistema principles and concepts in there, especially anti-cage tactics and breaking structure, energy-efficient takedowns. 42% uh, off for Father's Day, guys, so no excuse not to get my four-and-a-half-hour Combatives of Street Jiu-Jitsu uh, DVD. We'll have upcoming guests. And now, George, we can continue to talk now that I – took care of that, I think. So I don't know how to get rid of it, huh? Boom. Okay. So, um, yeah. So Kato, if, if if a rocket scientist head of whatever programs space intercontinental ballistic missiles in the USSR during the Cold War, um, do you think someone like him would be spending time something like Sistema and I've seen videos you had of a thousand people coming to attention and watch them do a demonstration. Do you think during the Cold War, USSR would have spent time and a guy like that, a out there, high level scientist, rocket scientist, master of geometry and physics, would be spending time in Sistema if it was all BS and we shouldn't be studying things like martial arts as physics and leverage? And geometry well to think that the russian military are a bunch of clowns you know how people act like what, what you think they're a bunch of clowns they're 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 definitely a you know dangerous you know their military is dangerous they don't they don't they don't play games you know with uh their martial arts or what they use you know to 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 laugh at uh at these guys you know that it's like uh, Kardashenkov. It's I, I can't I don't even have the words to describe the stupidity when people uh, you know look at somebody like that and think that uh, you know that I mean the guy is a rocket scientist so just like you say of course he's gonna he's gonna know more than we do and he would oh he's it. gonna know more about outer space than we do too George yeah so George. With everything going on and the Pentagon and DOD briefing Congress, what the heck do you think is going on with all this UFO stuff? I don't know. Um, you believe it's real? I'm asking you first. You're the one with the alien DNA. <laughs> what do you think it is? Uh I don't know what it is, but I mean to think that we don't that they're that we're the only life on the you know in the whole universe that that uh, you know 
that there's nothing else out there. I think that's ridiculous. It's kind of egotistical, isn't it? It's very awful, egotistical. An awful waste, an awful waste of space. Not just one solar system, but infinity and beyond. Yeah, but all the different what? solar systems and planets and things and how huge the universe is to think that we're the only ones. Pretty but egotistical you, of humanity on Earth. There may be humans on other planets, but humanity on Earth, that's pretty uh that's pretty egotistical. But let's talk about okay, so the Pentagon comes out, three videos leak, then they've confirmed now that these videos are legit, not doctored videos. Right. You see all these different types of UFOs. Uh, out there, and I'm going to go over some of the stuff in the history, incredible people that are speaking up and have been speaking up over time. We see different shapes. We see saucers. We see triangles. We see Tic Tacs. We see all these unidentified flying objects, a.k.a. UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAVs, unidentified aerial vehicles, and some of which also can go into the ocean, no problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess there's two people, uh, everyone's coming out now and saying, no, that this, these are, these are crafts. These, these aren't, I mean, pretty much the government now, Obama, all kinds of people coming out basically saying, yeah, these are crafts. Now you can either say these are military vehicles, our government or other governments, mostly China or Russia. Or they're extraterrestrial. What do you think? Do you, do you think? Do you lean? Everyone seems to either be going with one or the other. Do you well, lean okay. one way or the other? Well, if we're if they're Russian or if they're from China, they, they I guess their technology they run circles around us. Then don't they? I mean, if we have to say that this is China, we can't do that, and they can do that. So that's why I don't believe that. I don't believe that it's China. If it is, that they're more way more sophisticated than we are. And if they're that advanced, we'd already be finished. It'd be well, one week of one week of war, and we'd be done already because it's such a technological advancement. If we didn't have it ourselves, well, we could believe that they're that that advanced, or could be right now. But UFOs is nothing new. It's been we've been. I mean, what was it, Roswell? Could we believe yeah. that? Could we believe that? Back in the 90s and 80s and late 60s, uh, that that there was all China. China wasn't developed then. No, yeah, it's illogical to think that China was developed back then in the, right. in the late awesome. 40s. Right. So really, this all started. This really all started uh, just after the end of World War II, which is kind of interesting it's timing, and also Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's right. If you look at the timing of when this really started to explode with UFO sightings. Uh, and throughout history, every culture throughout history has also had uh, paintings and drawings and, and even uh, in Christianity. And we see three saucers flying away uh, on famous paintings. On pyramids? Um, on pyramids, too. And what about the pyramids, too? And are the pyramids related to the one of the – I mean, you, you be, you've got orbs you got saucers, you've got triangle or triangle-shaped, pyramid-shaped aircraft, and we have Tic Tacs now. Um, and all of those have been either kind of depicted in, throughout history in different cultures and definitely been seen um, 
maybe more on the Tic Tacs lately, but um, definitely been seen since the end of World War II. Right. I, I think that's a fair thing to say. It could be that if that if it's all true that they're very concerned with antimatter. You know, just the whole fission and fusion, and uh, they're really concerned with uh, the the uh, the whole nuclear thing because meaning uh, if it is extraterrestrial, or at least some of them are extraterrestrial, they seem to be caring a lot more about us almost destroying ourselves once. The nuclear bomb came around. Well, also, you know, it could be that when when Hiroshima, when we hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that, that uh, the whole universe could see that. What happened? Yeah, yeah, it was that's, a pretty big fireworks show. That's a, big, <laughs> that's a real big flare, <laughs> you know, and 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 so that attracted a lot of attention in the universe for them to come down. So you lean towards extraterrestrial? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's. I don't think. I don't think it's. I would believe that more than I would that it's that we're so advanced that we created such things, and even our air force and all these other, you know, experts uh, that are seeing it, that are encountering it, and you know, this is light years ahead of them. That they can outmaneuver any any plane, any any aircraft. I, I can't <laughs> believe it's some top secret thing you know some government creation do you think more it seems like more and more of the world is agreeing with you and that it's almost not we're the crazies anymore in fact it's absolutely illogical improbable uh to the highest percentile of improbability that out of all this space out of all the universe out of all the universes and possibly interdimensions that we're the only you know, thinking species outside of animals and that we're it, we're the only life on earth. That's illogical. It's just not mathematical. It's not scientific. It's anti-scientific. You know so what I think? I, like one the only ones. Are you familiar with Bob Lazar? Yeah. Let's get to Bob. Let's, so uh, let, before I give you my theory, so if your theory is extraterrestrial and if you look on the news now, everyone's ha ha, either it's extraterrestrial or it's military. I'm going to give you my take uh, in, in a bit. So isn't it interesting that at the end of World War II and nuclear bombs, and boom, now all the sightings really happen. And if you listen to high Air Force colonels and people that have uh, spoke out and stuff and work, used to work at nuclear silos, when things started to go fritzy and maybe a, a nuke might mess up and launch or when things got really bad and really tense, like Cuban Missile Crisis or that Soviet guy who saved the world, that he goes, no, I'm disobeying when you would get shot for disobeying orders. Uh, a submarine, I can't think of his name right now. There's some very good movies uh, made on him. He was ordered to fire because their system said that the Americans had fired ICBMs. He, his... his uh, protocol, his orders are to fire, and he refused. It seems like maybe extraterrestrials are paying a lot of attention to us to not <laughs> commit complete genocide. So any after World War II, and be, it's also interesting to me that the Nazis were looking at a lot of technology, technological advancements 
flying saucers. Um, they were trying to develop all these weird aeronautic aircraft, uh, the, the flying wing that basically looks like what became our B-2 stealth bomber. The Nazis were very, very ahead with that kind of stuff in the 40s, late 30s, 40s, and also interested in the occult uh, as well. So let's get to Roswell. Before we go to Roswell, there's Operation High Jump. And uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but the president signs a whole bunch of our naval vessels, I think 13 naval vessels, destroyers, all these big ships to go to Antarctica. Suddenly World War II ends, and now we're signing a declaration to Congress that he's sending a bunch of warships down to Antarctica in 1946. To me, that is awfully, awfully, awfully interesting. That was Operation High Jump, uh, December 46 through late February. And then they're suddenly recalled. Some people died. Operation Windmill, 47 to 48. Boom, that corresponds with Roswell, New Mexico is July 47. So stuff after World War II really, um, really was an uptake. And I think you and me are in agree, uh, agree. We agree that it seems that at least four countries were very aware of UFO activity, U.S., Russia, China, and U.K. At least, minimum, those four countries seem very aware of a lot of UFO activity. Uh, any thoughts? No, I, I don't, I'm fine. I mean, that, that's true. They, yeah. But, so, uh, and in the UK, guys, they've had a whole lot of major sightings by pilots and people in the Navy and the Air Force. It, it's kind of hard. All the crop circles. All the crop circles, Stonehenge, uh, and Chile. Cows, cows yeah, cow, cow mutilation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abductions. I mean, who knows? Um. Let's fast forward now. So we go through all this stuff has been happening in the 40s, 50s, 60s, all over the world. We got this guy, Paul Hellyer. Paul Hellyer was a Canadian minister of defense. Canadian minister of defense. Uh, he was uh, very high up in the military. He was an engineer himself. And he was minister of defense, I think, from 63 to 67. In 2005... He speaks out UFOs exist. And then there was a big gathering, I think, in, I don't know where it was, Washington or Canada, I think. I may be wrong, guys. I don't have all the facts. Um, all these high-ranking, mostly Air Force uh, people, I mean, like 12 guys. These aren't hillbillies in Texas. I think it was 11 or 12 guys that come and speak out, and most of them had worked like in the nuclear silos in the 70s. Like, man, our systems went down and the power went out. And we got a UFO vehicle flying a, directly above where the missile tube launches out of. We got a lot of high-ranking people saying stuff like that. So 2005, this goes, hey, all these guys are getting together, and we got the Canadian Minister of Defense saying not only UFOs exist, but aliens exist. America and Canada have been aware of them for quite some time, at least three different species that America's uh, aware of, one of which works very closely with the U.S. government. Boom. Like, 
this isn't some quack pot. Okay, it's hard to like deny stuff like that. Recently, what, eight years ago or something like that, we got the Vatican. We got people from the Vatican, high ups, saying, yeah, UFOs are real and it's something, you know, we need to look into and, and accept. You know, that's interesting. Uh, recently, we got the Israeli space chief, Hayim. He said he was a high, uh, well respected professor, a general in the Israeli military. And he was the space chief. And he's coming out and saying, yeah, UFOs are real. Uh, we're aware of it. He said Trump's aware of it. Um, so DJT, we'll say from now on, because we're on YouTube, DJT seemed like in Thanksgiving of last year, he kept hitting that he had a very big decision to make. I think that was right around Thanksgiving time. Do you remember him? He kept dropping, like, I have a really big decision to make this weekend. Do you remember that? That was like really interesting. I do remember that, yeah. Like it was the biggest decision of his, not only his life, but for humanity around the world's life. Yeah, but we didn't hear anything about it after that. And boom, it just dropped, right? Yeah. And so this Israeli space, uh, space chief, and again, Professor uh, General Ashed, he says Trump is aware of it and like, it seems like that didn't happen. So that leaves speculation that maybe extraterrestrials said humanity's not ready yet, or someone high up in our government, or maybe the string pullers that really pull all the governments around the world, the people, the five families and the people that really control things, maybe they said, uh, nope, you're not divulging that. Humanity's not ready for that yet or uh, whatever. So I think that's interesting. You brought up Bob Lazar. Oh. Barry Obama himself recently said, yeah, the UFOs are real. He didn't say aliens, but he said UFOs. Right. right. I but mean, we got high-level people from around the world saying all this stuff is going on. And the Pentagon releasing the three videos or at least confirming their existence after they were leaked. We go back to Bob Lazar saying he worked at late S4 in the late 80s. Just south of Area 51. You know, Bob Lazar is in Michigan, George. I think you need to go pay him a visit. And maybe soon the world will give Bob Lazar. You think the government will give Bob Lazar a uh, uh, we're, we're, we're sorry apology? Well, you, where is Bob Lazar? I mean, you think that right now, since they're all talking about it, you think you'd see him more in interviews? Well, you know, the government arrested him twice. Once for uh, involvement in a prostitution brothel, and then later, which maybe should have been done, but later for uh, selling illegal fireworks materials, maybe too much stuff. I don't know exactly what the charges were. Over, you know, FBI comes in and like you're, you know, you're set, you're, you're sending your fireworks stuff to other states. You know, big, big old fireworks like you illegally buy in the black market from China. Um, you know, something like that. So maybe they raided his house like 35 agents and I think an armored vehicle the last time. And they, they went through all his stuff in cabinets and like, why are you looking for fireworks up there? And, you know, they're trying to push, I think, his wife or a significant other like out of the room. And they just storm in there and they're going through all his stuff looking for stuff. 
Uh, interesting with Bob Lazar, he talked about Ohm at 115. And now that's on the periodic table, and that's debatable whether he was right about the the actual science of that element. But he said long ago, this element's what it seems they use for anti-gravitational propulsion systems. Right, but you remember what he was saying about 115 was that, you know, it, it had to be naturally occurring with a high enough atomic number to actually be useful because otherwise it would uh, disintegrate into antimatter. And uh, anything above 85 was not naturally occurring but man-made, and all the man-made stuff would disintegrate, wasn't useful. Not it's stable, not, yeah. Wasn't long stable. Time. Only right, microsecond. Right, wasn't it would turn into antimatter, and they weren't able to use it. So what they were hunting for is something with a high atomic number of one fifteen that was naturally occurring. And you kind of wonder is that what all these space expe expeditions and are about trying to go to find go to one of these planets that have an element that's naturally occurring on those planets, you know, on uh, on on Mars or the Moon, and and bring it back down. So I have a feeling that's what it, that's why they're doing it. Well, yeah, for... it's weird. We never went back to the moon. I guess we're finally going to. Uh, did we ever go there in the first place? Why are we not going back to the moon? What did we see on the dark side of the moon? Uh, Elon Musk sure is awfully interested in Mars and seems to be getting uh, big old contracts from the government. So a whole lot of stuff seems to be going on. Uh, guys, look at the gimbal footage and uh, the Nimitz footage and uh, if you look at uh, uh, the fast mover footage, I think, I forget what it's called, the quick mover, fast mover, whatever that video is called, it seems to be what Lazar talked about. He said um, the 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 saucer, whatever they had, could go in a sport mode. And that seems to be some of the stuff we're seeing, that these things can fly 60,000 feet up, and boom, they're at the, the, the surface of the ocean and then even can descend in the ocean. Or we see that fast mover skimming the ocean at 19,000 miles per hour, 43,000 miles per hour, or they're teleporting. Okay. When you're going from 60,000 feet up to one feet above the ocean, that's like 43,000 uh, miles per hour or 19,000 miles per hour. Another incident like Man, that's some that's some that's some crazy, uh, crazy stuff. I'm just gonna go over my notes, guys. The Triangle Space Saucers. A lot of people think that that's been that has been our military with a TR3A or 3B. I think one's manned, one's unmanned, or maybe even different stuff. Codename Ostra. Whole lot of people think that we've had something like that since the 80s. These flying triangles, uh, maybe anti-gravitational propulsion system. Or maybe you see them like this, and even if it's manned, it's like, well, what do they have where they're not getting the G-forces? Uh, since then, we also got a um, – the Navy, U.S. Navy filed a patent, U.S. 10144532B2, for an inertia mass reduction system, electromagnetic propulsion system, triangular spacecraft. So that's after all the reports of the TR-3A triangle aircraft years later, and now we got a Navy patent. You can look it up right now under that patent. Um, I think that's awfully uh, interesting. Almost done with my notes. We got Luis D. Elizondo. He was the director of National Program Special Management Staff, uh, is what was on his when he uh, quit because they weren't divulging stuff. 
Advanced Aerospace Threat ID Program, which was $22 million project under DIA. These people aren't drunk bubba on the porch. We got a lot of credible or mostly credible people and high-level government jobs and around the world coming out and speaking out about this stuff. So I think it's really, really interesting. I, I don't know if they're going to actually divulge anything. Supposedly Congress has gotten one debrief already. I don't know. It's just a lot of stuff going on. What do you think? Yeah. I, I, I mean, have you ever heard the story, uh, the Phil Schrecker story, Schrecker story? No, I don't think so. The situation that happened in, uh, I don't know how to say it, Dusselay, Mexico, someplace. It was like underground. I think it was in Mexico. Um, and, and I guess there was like, uh, I think it was during the time of, um, was it Truman? Anyway, this guy, he went, uh, he was underground, Phil, he, uh, Phil Schrechter, and he tells a story of get, getting shot by an alien. And he's, I mean, he's saying there was aliens down there and um, they were creating hybrids and there was mutilated body parts and all kinds of stuff. Like uh, it was just like a, I forgot what they called it, Nightmare Alley or something like that. And uh, his friend pushed him on the elevator. He got shot by one of these aliens or he, I think he tried to shoot one or something, but he went like the alien went like this or something and a beam came out and he has his fingers missing. And he had all these scars all over his chest because it just ripped them open. But he was on an elevator, and his friend died because he never made it back on, just him. His friend saved his life, got put his body away, pushed him on the elevator, hit some buttons, and sent him, sent him uh, back up. And uh, and that's why he lived. But wow. and nobody even knew, nobody even knew this that there was like an underground, almost like a war with a fight with aliens. And I, I, I mean, I'm just going by memory, so it's hard for me to figure to remember exactly what it was. But if you look about, maybe there's some sub subterranean stuff going, yeah, the, going on too. Right, he was a high level military guy too, and he was talking about it. And uh, he died. Something happened. He got poisoned after. I mean, he was dead after that. He went public. He started talking about it, and uh, a few years later, he died of mysterious uh, circumstances. Oh, yeah. And, you know, whistleblowers often just happen to be in bagel stores where people come in and rob it, shoot that exact person that was a whistleblower and leave without taking any money. And yeah. helicopters and airplanes just have a huge propensity of blowing up uh, totally mathematically uh, improbable compared to uh, averages uh, when someone happens to be a whistleblower or their car. Why I drive an old car. Uh, cars just careen and hit walls. Killing everybody. It's not like we have systems that can be hacked nowadays in our vehicles. Um, so, yeah, just some things to uh, think about. Okay. So ask me what I think. Is it man-made or is it extraterrestrial? Yeah, is it man-made or is it ex extraterrestrial? That's what everyone seems to take the stance on. Boom, I'm going to blow minds. I think it's both. I think it's both, and here's how I think it's both. What do you mean, shared alien technology? That it was that we gained something from it. That crash technology we back engineered, but we even more so than that. I think it's the Nazis in Antarctica. 
I think the Nazis didn't go away. I think the Nazis went to Argentina and South America. And I think the Nazis went to Antarctica. And I think the Nazis, a lot of engineers came over to the U.S. and a lot went to Russia. We split them up. And, uh, I mean, who do you think was NASA? All these Na NASA's Nazi. NASA, NASA was always Nazi. It was always run by the Nazis. That's NASA. That's who's sharing stuff with us and probably divulging stuff 20 years late and the CIA and everything. Do you think that the Nazis didn't live on and perhaps with what's going on in the world uh, really um, gotten the infrastructure uh, of the world elites and um, deals were made at the end of World War II and gotten to Russia and gotten to uh, the U.S. primarily and Argentina as well, which is proven. Uh, and then I think I think Nazis do maybe have a base in Antarctica, and they develop technology, perhaps in agreements with our country and other countries. Uh, I think it's their engineers and their scientists that have developed things, and perhaps Roswell was a real extraterrestrial crash, yeah, and we back-engineered yeah. stuff. So I think that some of these saucers, I think the Tic Tac is probably extraterrestrials now going, what the F are you idiots doing? trying to save us. I think some of the saucers and triangles are Nazi and U.S. technology. I already told you about the patent number uh, and the TR3As and Bs long before that. Uh, I think that our, you know, I think the Nazis infiltrated other countries. And I think even a lot of what's going on in the elites, I think that Nazis haven't stopped being Nazis. And I think they infiltrated a lot. And I think a lot of our science and space technology comes from them. If you look at human history, it's been an exponential. I mean, if you just look at the 40s to now, it's this exponential growth bell curve that's like this to AI and space technology, computers and Internet. Oh, it's so fast. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And so I think some of that is uh, back-engineered alien tech. Maybe a couple crashed aircraft here and there were recovered, Roswell or others. Stuff that they're working in Area 51, not really, Area 52, probably farther away, where these people all in this suburb, everyone leaves and they all get on a private flight and leave. <laughs> Everybody that's just, oh, we're just normal neighbors, but if they were all tracked and they're going behind a barbed wire fence and getting on a private airplane, disappearing somewhere. Uh, if you go to the 50s and, you know, even some satanic stuff, JBL and everything going on with these crazies in California, if you really look into it, a lot of weird stuff's been going on for a long time. And I don't think those people in California and I don't think the elites and I think the Nazis might be all tied into this. So I think some of it is different. Um, I think the Tic Tacs are extraterrestrial. If you honestly look at Nazis, they were playing with triangle shaped and saucer shaped aircraft and trying to figure out lift and uh, different propulsion systems uh, back then and rocket technology. Um, so I think it's both. I think we're in cahoots. Uh, I think that, and I do think the, the, the going back to operation high jump and the, why the, why the president sent world war two just gets over and the president goes, we got to send all those ships to Antarctica. Is there a subterranean base in Antarctica or a place you can't fly over that actually has vegetation and normal temperature 
and uh, a, uh, some lakes that go to the ocean. I think they've been down there. It's not like you can go anywhere. You'll be told not to. You can't. There's no fly zones. Uh, I think I think a lot's been going on. So I think it's man-made. And boom, dropping the Nazi bomb right there. Uh, I think they're in cahoots with the elites and kind of depopulation and a whole lot of stuff going on that I can't really say on YouTube. So I think a lot of what's going on is the control and the, the big families that really pull the strings of the politicians and everything else. So I think it's both. And I think some of the Tic Tacs might be coming down being like, oh, you guys got saucers now and anti-graph technology? And Bob Lazar talked about the saucer that in one of those videos that's been released by the Pentagon as official – it turns sideways, and it seems like it's being sucked from the bottom. Bob Lazar did describe that. He did describe other stuff. You know. Have you ever have you ever watched the movie Fire in the Sky? Uh, not since I was a kid. The Travis Walton. I I don't remember it. Been punched yeah. in the head too much. You know, it was uh, James Garner played in it, and the guy from Terminator. You know, I mean Terminator Two. Remember the melt the melting guy? What's his name? Patrick David Patrick. Graduated Patrick. from my high school. Patrick Robert David Patrick. or Robert Patrick. Huh? Robert Patrick graduated he from my high school. Yeah, well, he was, was born. That's interesting. What do you mean? He's I from know. Michigan. Yeah. No, oh, I didn't know that. But uh, yeah. yeah, he plays. He but that guy plays in it, and um, it's about a group of lumberjacks, and they were leaving. They were going home for the night, and they had an argument. And they were uh, pissed off at each other. And uh, they saw something. They said, what was that in the sky? They were dry, as they were driving on the way back, they saw some something light. Some All the trees were red, some kind of redness and stuff. The whole sky was red. So one of the guys got out, and he ran over out in the field. And that's when this red area started moving towards them. And they were yelling at him to get back in the car. And he was shot by something and knocked them right down. That's when they took off. They just left him there. And uh, so because there was argument, because they, they, there was animosity between that guy and the other guy, they thought that uh, this was, since he's gone, that they just murdered him. You know, and then and their excuse was, and it, you know, a flying saucer came by and got him. But really, you know, they were thinking, these guys, we're going to test them all in the lie detector test and see how that will, see how that turns out. But all of them passed the lie detector test. And... Uh, but the whole village was thinking, you know, these guys were all murderers. And uh, I think five days later or a week later or something, this guy resurfaced, this Travis Walton, and uh, made a phone call, collected it from a phone booth, and he couldn't even talk. And uh, he couldn't, he had no memory of what happened. And one time when there was a party, they had a party after when he was recovering, that party, all that noise sent him into like a, it was a trigger for, uh, these you know, memories of what happened to him. And uh, he just ended up under the table in a fetal position. And that's when all the memories came back of what happened to him, that he was taken, you know, in this uh, flying saucer. He was floating around in there and they were dragging him through the corridors. And he just remembers his fingers hitting glasses, eyeglasses and belongings of other people, like so much like down the hallway. And it was, it was really an interesting it all looked real. I mean, they did a good job in the movie, you know, making all that, even the aliens yeah. looking real. And uh, just a, a, what you would think they would be, you know, how they would look. But uh, 
going through the corridor like that and seeing all the eyeglasses and hats and things and boots and shoes, it kind of just showed you that, you know, he wasn't the only one that they've been doing this for a long time, abducting people. And that's what he remembers. And, uh, he was on Joe Rogan just not not that long ago, maybe a year ago, and he was talking about the story. and And he's always consistent. You know, this happened in 1967 to him, or something like that, or 19 late 60s. And he's always been consistent in his story and how that happened to him. And uh, so, uh, you know, for a while they thought he was crazy. You know, it's just out there, but. I don't think they think that anymore, you know. I think they really believe something like that really did happen. Yeah. It's, Bob, mean, Lazar, Bob Lazar believes it's real. Remember they tried to erase him. They try to he's a scientist. They try to there's no there's he claimed to be a scientist and people that knew him knew he was, but they it was like the FBI yeah. erased, they erased him. They erased all of his credentials, all of his school. If you Everything. don't think powerful people that have really pulled the strings for a long, long time want to retain their power and control over everybody, us little peons down here. Yeah, I mean, so um, let's start wrapping up. Uh, guys, um, we'll maybe take only three questions. Put, type in question, big capital, give me a hyphen, and I'll maybe pick three to five because neither me nor George can talk anymore. My mouth's so dry. And I got to go to the bathroom soon. <laughs> George, if you need to take a break, maybe we can do that. We can talk by ourselves for a minute and go to a, a, a break to the bathroom, or you want to finish up? It's up to you. Let me go get my phone. Okay. Guys, I hope you're enjoying it. Let me wrap up a little bit on the UFO business with George, and then we might only take like three to five questions. Uh, I can't even talk anymore, and I need to uh, – we've gone way longer than I thought, but my private lesson canceled, and George is very interesting to talk to and some interesting subjects. I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, while I'm at that, guys, big deal right now. 42% off the most I've ever seen. Father's Day, get my four-and-a-half-hour uh, DVD. Really, I think there's no excuse not to. I, I hope you guys do that. we got some cool upcoming guests. Next week will be uh, Razor Ray Garcia, Enzo Blackbelt, Judo Blackbelt, longer martial arts than myself, NYPD. Then we'll have Viking Samurai the week after that on the 27th. And we'll have pro wrestler, funny man, Matthew Granahan after that. And uh, hopefully uh, middle of July I can get Kathy Long on. She responded, so she'd be happy to do it. And uh, still trying to reach out to Mark Dacascus. You guys, so let's, let's build Bob Lazar. Where are you at? George, go give, give Bob Lazar a visit, and hopefully we can uh, get on with uh, Bob Lazar pretty soon. So um, before we leave the UFO subject, guys, maybe everyone's saying one or the other. I think it could be both. I think different chips might be different things. Keep in mind also I think there is a um, possibly a subterranean thing that's also going on. Uh, particularly Antarctica, but also other places. Um, from Operation High Jump in the 46, Bird, who uh, Admiral Bird, um, you know, interesting that the Argentinian uh, newspapers had him talking about hinting at, you know, UFOs and stuff. 
that's also where all the Nazis went. A lot of them that didn't, you know, start NASA here <laughs> and go to NASA and didn't probably go to Russia and didn't go to an underground base in Antarctica. Uh, they all went to Argentina. So that's also an interesting coincidence. Um, so, you know, and guys, we know way more about other universes than we do our own ocean. What are we, like 30,000 feet down now? It was like 9, 15, 30,000 now, 42,000 even less. Maybe it's way less than 30,000. I don't know. But we got, I mean, the big, huge monsters under the ocean. We find more and more and bigger and bigger, and we find all kinds of crazy stuff. And we know so very little about the depths of our ocean and probably subterranean stuff as well. So just something to think about. Any last thing on UFOs? And I'll see if I can go through a couple comments. George, you got anything? Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that was even on. No, that's, uh, I mean, I think we covered it. Okay. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, any final plugs from you, George, before we take any questions? Uh, it's find you on Facebook. Yeah, just go by my name, George S. Bogosich. I just put a middle in this. Which YouTube should people uh, go subscribe to? Same thing, George S. Bogosich? Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right, I'm not getting any questions. Let's see if I can read it. George, can you read that? Do you see that? Uh, let's see. Power, it says power generation method. George's video, same as Chinese Fajing. Relax on impact to transfer the power in versus through. I don't consciously do that, so I don't think about relaxing on impact. I relax through the whole time. Is that what it says? Relax and impact to transfer the power? Yeah, versus just through the guy. I don't uh, relax and impact. I relax all the time. My hand, my fist is relaxed because if I tense my fist, then I tense my whole arm. Even on impact with some of most of your punches, you're fairly loose? Yeah. Or do you, you make it, or do you squeeze like a rock right at the end of your no, punch? Uh -uh, uh -uh. No, I don't. I actually, I let the alignment take care of it. If it's perfectly aligned, and I let it occur naturally, it has to be natural. If I can't consciously squeeze my hand, if if it happens, it happens. But I don't intentionally do that. You have to practice with a loose loose hand and hitting hard objects, and then feeling, get to know that feeling of how it closes by itself. That's really important. Well, George S. Pagasich, you are definitely. One of the most interesting people I've ever met. You're also probably the best martial artist I've ever met. Um, and I think it's been an interesting discussion. So I want to thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thanks again. Uh, and thanks for all your insights into martial arts. People wonder why I can do some of the stuff um, that I can do. It wasn't always in-person training, but just little tidbits occasionally when we connect little messages on Facebook. You give me a lot of insights uh, into martial arts and uh, how to do things. And, and I think I can do a lot of things live. Um, you've been a good teacher in that way. So you've given me a lot of insights and things to think about. Yeah. That's why uh, that video that, that comes up, you know, a lot with you in my house, when we recorded that, you know, 
I see a lot of comments. People think that uh, what was happening there was really soft and mild. <laughs> you, almost broke, you almost broke my forearm with a little down chop from a and couple people, inches away. A little down chop dropped me to my knees and almost broke my forearm. Like I haven't been hit before, and I'm just a big guy that's incredibly wimpy. Yeah. <laughs> now, George's power is crazy. George might be having some uh, how to hit hard videos coming out soon. We'll see stuff like that. Um, you got videos on your YouTube page. People should definitely go check out and subscribe to you, George S. Pagasich. Yes. Um, yes. And 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 all that kind of stuff. So, guys, thank you everyone for tuning in. We went a lot longer than planned. But uh, George is such an interesting guy and interesting topics. I hope that you enjoyed my first live stream with the guest. It went pretty well. Sorry we don't get a, to a ton of questions. It's over two and a half hours. Thank you all. Tune in next week for BJJ, Black Belt, Henzo, Black Belt, Judo, competitive guys, done all kinds of martial arts, NYPD, big-time vet on different squads doing real stuff, uh, Razor Ray Garcia. And then we'll have Viking Samurai. Thank you for joining in the following week. Sunday, 1 p.m. We'll usually do 1 p.m. PST, guys, so 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, George. Any last words? No, that's it. Thank you. Thank All right, you, thank you, everybody. Take care. We're ending. Kaboom. <laughs>